were you because were you trying to prove something to somebody or was it yeah yeah, yeah you hit the nail on the head actually yeah i was um okay so i've I've answered this in numerous interviews okay. at a more superficial level but but i think you're you're after you're after depth i think Jeff. yeah <laughs> the real reason the real reason i think is a huge um sort of traumatic insecurity from being adopted yeah. i had huge abandonment issues i then if my analysis of things is is roughly correct i um i adapted my own persona in order to fit in so um i very quickly lost sight of of who i was and and my own hopes and dreams and desires i just like you know i i i was i was what psychologists describe as the sort of doing a nice boy sort of uh, I, I was polite to everyone no one thought that anything was wrong I was quite shy but I was just trying to fit in I was trying to be loved because you, you don't want to be you don't want to be rejected and, uh, or abandoned again mm. and and um and I think as a result of that there was a huge insecurity that I would be abandoned and therefore a massive need to prove myself what's your life story Welcome to Inspirational Interviews with Jen Rod, where you will discover everyday brave hearts connecting with their truth. Find out what inspires them to do what they love, how they got here and why they never give up. Be inspired by these stories to create your beautiful life with your host, Jen Rod. Hi guys, welcome back to Inspirational Interviews. I'm super excited about this uh, conversation today because, you know, human beings like um, age, they like contrast, they like, um, yeah, a, a sort of a yin and a yang. And what I really enjoyed about this conversation with Ed Stafford is that, um, yeah, he's a guy that's going out there doing these crazy things, right? Um, but then... Yeah, we we see the other side, and I'm not sure which is the yin and which is the yang. I can't remember which one's which, but we see the soft side of Ed in this conversation in the sense that, you know, he just, yeah, he shares his journey from from his own perspective and not from um, – from an audience perspective, should we say. And it's just a super cool, real down-to-earth, open conversation where we talk about his journey. Um, yeah, we talk about the different uh, adventures that he's done, but mostly it's about the process and the psychology behind it and just like where he was at mentally, you know, while walking through the Amazon or, um, you know, what what drove him to, you know, to, to do this in the first place um, on a really deep intrinsic level. So, yeah, it's just a super cool up close and personal with Ed Stafford. And I'm, yeah, really excited to share it with you guys. Um, before we click into that, just a quick one, share this on with friends and family. As you know, sharing's caring, stories change lives. You know, when you hear stories like Ed's, for example, that can have such an impact on other people who, you know, who maybe have a goal to reach or who are struggling mentally um, with a process in their life or whatever the case may be. You know, stories are incredible. And if we can listen to a full life story, um, it will change your life because these stories mirror your own life and you don't have to be that person for, for that to happen. But, um, yeah, man, woman, 
you know, stories mirror and they, they teach us about our own lives and they, um, they share wisdoms with us. You know, in the old days, we would sit around a campfire and share stories and connect with one another. And, you know, this is my way of, of bringing this old fashioned, um, yeah, this old fashioned habit or this old fashioned tradition into modern society is by sharing these life stories with you. But yeah, you need to sit around the fire and you need to listen to them. So, um, yeah, share it on, connect with me on Instagram. I'm very active there. So go to inspirational interviews on Instagram. Um, otherwise just search, uh, inspirational interviews with Jen Rod and you'll find me there. Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and whatever other platforms you're busy with. Instagram's my most, um, active one. I like it. It's fun. And yeah, guys on the website, inspirationalinterviews.com once a week, you'll receive just a super cool life story in your mailbox. So go subscribe there. It's totally free. And, um, yeah, it's cool to receive these uh, these inspiring life stories of people just like you and me, but make different choices in our life and we find out how they get there. And those of you guys needing an interviewer, as I always say, just send me an email via the website um, on BookMe or uh, yeah, Jen at inspirationalinterviews.com is, is direct to my mailbox. So without any further ado, let's give a warm cyber welcome for this super cool Ed Stafford. Yeah, Ed, I mean, let's just go in here because not, I mean, I see you have loads of followers and you're well known, obviously, to a big audience um, on from, you know, through your work on Discovery and certainly through all your TV work in the UK. And then obviously that's gone international with Discovery, but on Channel 4 also in the UK. Um, yeah. But yeah, how? let's introduce you. How would you, from your own personal heart, how would you describe yourself? Um, very lucky, I think. Um I, um, I've, I've been quite fortunate in life. Um, I mean, I, I, I was adopted, um, but I got adopted by a really nice family who gave me an amazing upbringing. Mm. I had lots of, of, uh, of the advantages in life. I ended up, um, this is quite a fast version of it all, but I, I went to, um, I went into the army. Um, I did a year at, um, Sandhurst and came out as a captain. And then just at the point when I, d I don't think I'd, um, I'd never really had a massive lust for adventure or, um, or expeditions. And in, indeed, when I was in the military, in, in fact, I, I sort of bunked off a couple of the adventure training programs. And, um, I remember once we took, we only took paddles on a canoe, um, trip to France and we didn't even take canoes, but we just took lots of pictures of ourselves with, with paddles <laughs> in our hands to, to, yeah. to bluff that we were doing this big canoeing expedition. We just went and got drunk for the whole week. Yeah. But, um, Anyway, when I came out of the military, I decided I didn't want to do what everyone else was doing was leaving the army and I didn't want to become a stockbroker or a banker. I wanted to, um, I wanted to uh, do something different and I ended up taking a job taking gap year kids on, um, rainforest expeditions, conservation expeditions to Belize. Um, and it was, it was just wonderful. It was all of the sort of skills that I'd learned in the military, but none of the inherent seriousness and, and we were doing conservation work, which was all very well meaning and everything. So I think from that point on, that really changed my life. I've, I've I pretty much led expeditions um, from that point. I was, what, 26, I think, at the time. Yeah. Um, now was it, So you were 26 when you left the army? Yeah, I was 26 when I left the army. And, and um, apart from one short spell, because the jobs I was doing paid 50 quid a week or something, yeah. uh, you know, because the sort of jobs you do for the lifestyle rather than for the money. And at one point I ran out of money and had to do a little stint in Afghanistan Um just doing the sort of uh, jobs that pay a little bit more money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but were um, you on but the were you on the front line? Were you fighting, or what, what no, were you doing? 
No, we got we did get bombed by the Taliban once, but um, uh, no, I was working basically as a consultant to the UN. Um, basically, when the when Karzai was elected, um, it was the first ever presidential elections in Afghanistan, and, mm. and because um, the UN were coming in to assist the elections, and the UN is made up of a, a quota of all the different member nations, and and so they had quite a lot of people who didn't necessarily know how to win an election um, in charge of teaching the Afghans how to win an election. Uh, yeah. And it was quite a, um, a farce, actually. And, and so they then employed a sort of layer of ex-military consultants over the top of that to just make sure that the, that the papers got to the, to the polling station on polling day and then got collected and taken to the counting centre. And so we had a sort of logistics plan I, I did for the western region of Afghanistan. And there was everything on my distribution plan from a Black Hawk helicopter to 420 donkeys. Um, and it was just this <laughs> yeah. extraordinary, like, setup, that, um, which was fascinating to be involved in. Um, so, yeah, so did that say for that again. You, say that again. You're, you're talking like like you, you, you've taken some, some plant in the Amazon. <laughs> Well, I've got to slow story. you down, um, Ed. Yeah. <laughs> I need to slow you down. You're about to have okay. twins. You need to slow down. <laughs> okay. My brain is probably getting oh, a bit my word. Yeah. So, so um just so to back yeah. back up there, what did you say about the okay. about these helicopters and the donkeys? Like you were what was exactly your role there? I was um assisting with the setup for the presidential election. Okay, yeah. So I'd never had a presidential elections before. Yeah. And uh and the UN were there to assist, but but um, the, a lot of the UN members were pretty clueless without being too rude. Um, yeah. And and so they yeah they 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 shipped in a load of ex-military consultants just to make sure that the wheels wouldn't fall off. Yeah, the whole yeah. Of them. yeah. They needed the Americans needed it to be a success, basically. Yeah. So it was all funded by the Americans. But it was just, yeah, this ridiculous logistics plan, which I was responsible for. I was based in Herat, so I was responsible for the, the western region of Afghanistan. And, um, yeah, and the, the logistics plan was a bit like a milk round, really, of mm -hmm. dropping papers off and picking them up. Um, but, yeah, it involved everything from a Black Hawk helicopter to 420-odd um, okay. <laughs> donkeys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, but, uh, incredible experience to go through. Um, did that, but that was just a sort of blip in, in an otherwise sort of a period of doing quite a lot of overseas expeditions, mm. um, largely for charities. And then at the age of, how old was I, um, 32, I, um, I decided I was a little bit old to, to really care who's, who got what A-level results and stuff on these, um, these sort of gap year trips and, mm. and who did who. And I just felt a bit weary, but I also felt, you know, I, I've actually got quite a lot of experience of, of, of living and operating in the jungle now. Um, perhaps I could do a big expedition off my own back. And, um, I'd never been to the Amazon before. Um, literally never, never, um, stepped foot in the Amazon basin at all. But, um, I'd read a book called Running the Amazon, which was about, um, two guys who were the first to, um, run the full length of the Amazon in a, in a kayak mm -hmm. and, uh, got totally immersed in the story. And, and, you know, they were shot at by, um, uh, indigenous tribes with arrows and the, river and everything like that and i just thought well wouldn't that be even more extraordinary is it rather than sort of whizzing past these tribes at high speed on the water and, and having glancing interactions with them if you were actually walking you had to literally walk into each village and and you know be non-threatening and and try and win around all of these uh, all mm, of these people mm. that that trying to pass through and so so that was the concept um born really i i thought 
if I could walk the length of the Amazon, that would be extraordinary. I then worked out that nobody had done it before and therefore it would be a Guinness World Record and that sort of stuff. And so I, I think it just kind of snowballed from yeah. that point. And when was that? I, that was um, 2008. Beginning of 2008, I started and, and, okay. and, and it took two and a half years to finish. Yeah. Oh, because I've, I've interviewed another um, guy quite a while ago. Um, he's also he also he was working in the corporate world, and he was just decided it was also the beginning of his career. <clears throat> but he decided, you know, um, that wasn't for him. And then he also actually went into the Amazon. Um, uh-huh. And I've got all these pictures of him with these locals, and uh, so also very interesting experience. And from because actually I want to just now back up, so because we'll hear about your life story through through this the process of this conversation but okay. going back to now when so did you study or not you left straight and you went i did study um i i uh, went to university did mechanical engineering for one day and then <laughs> after it was 35 hours a week and i thought there's no way i'm doing 35 hours a week. <laughs> yeah at the end, of the end of the day they said has anyone got any questions i shot my hand up and said look how would you change off this course so I ended up doing geography, which was much better. It was about 60% women and it was <laughs> seven hours a week. And that was much, much nicer. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, geography at university, which I thought was just a throwaway subject, I have to admit. And um, ended, it's ended up being really useful to me in, in terms of having a basic understanding of meteorology and tectonics and climate and, and rivers and all sure. that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's actually very useful. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing, actually, right? If you, you know, listening to people's stories, just all the dots connect, you know, they, if you look back, you actually then notice how all these dots, you know, do yeah. connect and they, they serve their purpose. And, you know, obviously, because this show is also all about speaking to people like yourself who do go out there and do these courageous things. And obviously, in your instance, I mean, it's freaking like on a, another level, but I mean, not everyone wants to do that, but um, it's just nice for people to recognize that, you know, where you are right now serves a purpose. Um, mm. and there is a reason for it, but obviously, you know, if you, you, you know, and there's this voice inside you to move on, like there was these, you, you talk about these, this, you talk about feelings and, you know, I felt this wasn't right to this, this voice. Um, yeah. you know, that's so important is to know that and recognize that, like, was it easy for you to just quit mechanical engineering? Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I think I'd basically done it because I thought my dad wanted me to do it. And, um, you know, and, um, and it was, I think it's tricky, isn't it? As you grow up, I mean, some people have a very secure sense of self and other people end up bumbling through life, kind of trying to please the people around them, don't they? And, mm-hmm. and I certainly was in the latter category at that mm-hmm. stage of my life. But I equally recognized that I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to do that much work if it was something I wasn't really interested in so um yeah it was I'm not I'm not I'm not claiming I'm holier than now it was a it was a four year uh, three years of being at university was was fun times really it wasn't um it, it wasn't all about work at all for me. yeah yeah uh, but but yeah um I didn't want to make my life more complicated than it needed to be at that stage I suppose yeah but I mean did they put pressure on you to to do did they put the pressure on you as a young a man you know um no i think i felt an inherent pressure to you know um embrace life do the things i needed to do in order to in order to 
I suppose, be a success. I, yeah. uh, at the time, yeah. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I thought I needed to have the qualifications that would allow me to have different options open, I suppose. And, yeah. and, and therefore, you know, I, I did understand uh, um, that, that, you know, getting a degree was an important thing. Um, at the back of my mind, I'd always <clears throat> had the military as, a, as an option. And um, if you've got a degree, you get um, seniority, two and a half years seniority in the British Army. And so, so even if I didn't get a very high degree, I knew that that would, that would still stand me in good stead if I ended up joining, joining the Army, yeah. which indeed I did. Yeah, and um, yeah. your dad. So you call him your dad, huh? Even though you were adopted. Yeah, my dad. I call my dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he 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 died of cancer in when was it? Two thousand. Yeah, no, uh, nineteen ninety nine actually. Um, and so never saw in the 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 sort of new millennium. Um, mm. but yeah, definitely call him my dad. Yeah. He, 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 um, he was he's the person that's given me, I suppose, things like my moral compass and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. He, he was he was a very strong figure. He was certainly the person that told me that you know if you if you start something and you said you're going to do it, then you need to see it through to the end. Follow and through, um, yeah. and yeah, and we would you know we, we, it started with things like you know saying you'll play rugby on a on a Saturday and then going out and getting drunk on a Friday night and waking up in the morning and going oh, I don't I don't want to play and it's absolutely not. You said you'll play and you'll play and and you know and that ended up transpiring to you know. Walking the Amazon, and about three months in, and I'm completely had enough of it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and yeah, it's it's the same principle, isn't it? You know, on a much bigger scale, and, and and obviously more people looking at you, so all the more important not to just be flaky, I suppose. Yeah. Well, that's I mean exactly. Who, yeah, but that's that's a great term that you use, flaky. You know what I mean? Because that's yeah. true. And nowadays, um, I mean nowadays, I find you know, with, certainly with social media and WhatsApp. Uh, it just gives yeah. people the the yeah the opportunity to be flaky. So it's it's more important than ever to have these strong role models. I just interviewed um, Kevin Richardson. I don't know if you know him. He's known no. as the <clears throat> the lion uh, whisperer in South Africa, and he you know he also talks so much about um, yeah just following through and uh you know the importance of that and um you know you and and he also talks of you know because he's a father as well and i mean you are a dad right so and you're about to yeah, have twins yeah. so it's you know having these strong figures in your life and for him his dad actually died when he was 13 so he lost right. that that sort of moral compass so to speak but then he ended up um you know um, meeting quite a well-known martial arts uh, guy in South Africa who became then his moral compass. So it's just, it's nice for people to to also understand and to recognize your, your moral compass doesn't have to be even your biological father. How, like in your case, it was your, it was your adopted father. And it yeah. can even be another figure. A, a moral compass doesn't have to be a parent even. But, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I would go for to say, although dad, you know, there were certain things like honesty and stuff. And, and, and commitment that he he was big on, but it wasn't till way later in my life that um, that I think I sat down and really sort of worked out the whole concept of of, of being true to certain values in life. I suppose, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I was at boarding school, um, and I think in that environment you did what you could get away with. You know, um, plan A was deny everything, and 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 the, <laughs> so it was complete. Complete opposite to integrity, complete opposite to to um, those values, and and you know I, I think that that continued through my twenties. And when I was in the military, I wasn't 
it was a, a million miles from a saint and I, I, I would just do what I could get away with, I suppose. Mm. And I think a lot of people in life do, don't they? I mean, with lockdown happening and stuff like that, we're just coming out of it. But I just automatically went into kind of this dutiful citizen who will, of course, follow the rules and, and lockdown. And obviously I've got a pregnant wife, so I didn't want her to get coronavirus. But I was just quite shocked by the, the amount of people who were just sticking two fingers up at it. And then I just mm. thought, well, it's taken you quite a long time, actually, mate, to, to develop this moral compass and to, to work out what you believe in and what's right and what's wrong. Mm. And a lot of people are still just, you know, they're just doing whatever they want, really, mm. quite frankly. And, and they haven't got much respect for the government and they don't have much respect for, for um, rules and regulations. And therefore, you know, you, you, can't, you can't kind of come in here and judge everyone because, because you would have been probably the same 20 years ago. So, yeah, yeah it's funny. So, okay, so, I mean, you, you went to the army and t tell me, you, you talk about it being quite a, well, quite an experience. Um, I mean, now you've obviously, if you'd look back to the army, um, were there things that you learned in the army that served you when you were in the Amazon? I mean, yeah, there were. I, th I think the biggest one was the fact that I knew that I mean, it was about a year before I think I thought that the Amazon was harder than anything I'd experienced before. So certainly for those first few months, I could always hold on to the knowledge that I've done tougher than this. I've been pushed harder than this before. Therefore, I know that I've got this reserve in the bank. And, and I started it with an, another guy called, another English guy called Luke Collier. And, and from day one, pretty much, it seemed to be that this was the hardest thing that he'd ever done. And I think that, that, that for, therefore he, he was in a more fragile position because because he was pushing himself to extremes um, more because he, he hadn't got a military background and 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 um, he just had had a different set of experiences during life and so mm. I think that's the biggest one. I mean, the militaries were great. I think about um, about uh, flexibility and thinking on your feet and adapting to situations. And I think that sort of training definitely helped because there's no way you can make a plan, a rigid plan that's going to last you. Two and a half years of walking the length of the Amazon, can so you? So was it two and a half years? Yeah, two, two and a half years to walk the river. Yeah, and 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 so you've got to be adaptable. And um, and I think, so yes, it, there were some things that that I'm grateful for and and that helped me. And yet, in other ways, I had to completely take my military hat off because the military is about brutal efficiency and speed and stuff like that. Mm. And you know, you're, you're in Latin America and everyone's working on manana and you want to hire a local guy to take you to the next village and he mm -hmm. can't really be booked afternoon so you've got to leave tomorrow and you're not far more sort of sitting around and, and literally just having to say look i'm gonna i'm gonna take that sort of brutal efficiency hat off and and, and i've got to just work at the same sort of um, you know with the same ethics as as some um, from south america or the same sort of uh, relaxed pace i suppose yes. um, and 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 yeah I, I look back on it and like i'm grateful for being in the military and i think it did give me that that foot in the door in terms of the expedition world and it probably gave me the confidence to start something like that but the older I get the less influence I think that has over my life and yeah. like for all of the survival skills and stuff that I end up drawing on now they're far more taught by sort of indigenous tribes and, and time spent with them and picking up simple beautiful ways of building traps and things that have got nothing to do with the military the military's you know training and that sort of stuff I think is quite crude really um mm. Yeah, so it did. It did have a big impact, and 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 is having sort of less less so as I get older, I suppose. Yeah. So just now, okay. So w what year did you finish school? 
Um, <clears throat> well, I was 18, so what year would that have been? Um, I went to How old are you now, Ed? <laughs> I am 44. You're 44, so you probably finished school in about, about 94. 90, I mean, not yeah, 94, 90, what am I saying? Um, you're 1994, you probably would have finished. Yes, well done, Jen, Jen I did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you finished <laughs> about 94, then you did a year of mechanical, then you did your three years of... Um, no, I did a morning. Oh, I sorry, one it was one day. Sorry, I forget. It was, yeah, it was yeah. just like a few hours, sorry. <laughs> so it was just a few... <laughs> <laughs> mechanical and then you went and you did three years of geography right yeah and then from there yeah. you you went taking into where, where did you say belize no well from there i um i did a year as a landscape gardener actually um which i really enjoyed i i i'd set my sight on the royal marines and the royal marines is quite an elite part of the british um forces and i didn't get in essentially okay. I, I passed the physical but i failed the um what's called the Admiralty Interview Board, which is down at Portsmouth. And at the end of a long stream of a week of sort of um, of testing, they put you in this little room and they say, uh, and they, they speak, it's a really nice lady speaks to you and she talks about your relationships and your home life and makes you feel very off guard. Mm. And then the last thing she said to me was like, if you've ever done any drugs at university, you know, you can be, you can be honest about this. You know, it's just best that everything's out in the open. And I was honest about the, about the stuff I'd done at university and, and, um, and I was failed on that. And, and I actually requested a sort of a, a bit of an analysis for the, for why they failed me. And they said it wasn't that you'd done drugs at university. It was the fact that you so readily admitted to doing it. Um, oh and, that is unbelievable. And so then, and their answer was join the, join the army and, and, and don't tell them that. And, uh, so I did. Mm. Then, so I then, yeah, I, I, I joined the, Joined the Devon and Dorset Regiment, which is an infantry battalion. Spent a year. Okay, at, okay wait. So, so hold on, hold on. Like yeah. what you just said there. I mean, that was that was profound. Like you said to yourself, "I'm gonna," you know what I mean? Like you went full throttle, and and you were you were honest, and they turned you yeah. down based on that. Yeah. Um Like wh- wh- I mean, that must have had some kind of effect on you because you you talk about moral compass and about not being flaky, and and this is something that's innate within you. There's definitely something that drives you away from being flaky. Do you know what I mean? You're very driven away from that and driven away from ju- well, just being immoral. And then here you were, you being moral, but and then they took like the, how did that affect you? Because this is. It's, I think it's one of the reasons, Jen, that I don't identify um, as being very military. Um, yeah. Because because it didn't. There was a conflict of um, of morals going on there. I mean, even I just sort of I sort of resigned myself that this was the game that I had to play for a small amount of time while I was in the military, learning the skills that I thought I wanted in order to then lead the life that I could possibly live. And so I tolerated quite a lot of things, but mm. I. I inherently didn't believe in a lot. I mean, the, in the officers' mess, they would have, and this sounds extraordinary, really, but they would have a second 11 night. And the second 11 night was from the commanding officer downwards. And it was basically, you weren't allowed to bring your wife or your girlfriend. You had to bring your mistress or the mm. woman that you, you were, you were shagging on yeah. the side. Yeah. And I, just that level of deceit and dishonesty. Throughout a whole, you know, these are the officers that are meant to be shining examples of people for the soldiers to be led by. Yeah. Um, 
It's just like, I don't, so, I, I so don't, in other words, I don't, believe, I don't believe you guys. No, it, it yeah. was, um, it was, because yeah. so basically they want you to come in innocent, but they will, uh, they will disrupt you. <laughs> it's like, my, my, my aim in psychology of the military is that basically they'll, they, they obviously there's a, a, an indoctrination during training and stuff like that, but I don't think they want you to be the doughy eyed, husband that is so in love with his wife and so enamored with his kids that he can't operate in a remote environment without them so they'd actually prefer to encourage somebody that that was a little bit devious and that cheated because they're more independent because then they're they're less likely to you know pine away when when sent to afghanistan for six months than, than somebody who's 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 happier to 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 be i suppose live a sort of in a single person's lifestyle or, or what I would describe as a military person's lifestyle because because it was absolutely blanket throughout the whole institution as far mm. as I could see. Mm. Yeah. So, okay, you, you were then a landscape architect for a year mm-hmm. after you're studying and then from there did you go to the – did you take these kids then after that or then what happened after that? The No, so landscape gardening was, was while – in between failing getting into the Royal Marines and yeah. actually getting into the so I, I then entered the military and, and, and did three three years well I did Santef and then three years as commissioned officer okay and then when I left the military I um, had loads of networking meetings in London I was trying to become a stockbroker or an estate agent or something like that yeah. failing at failing at getting anyone remotely interested in employing me but I took a job as an um, expedition leader to Belize, which was taking gap year kids on a um, on a conservation project. And okay. I just thought that's perfect. It will give me a little bit of breathing space yeah. until I come back to London and get a proper job. But I had a bit of an epiphany while I was in the jungle, and I, I went on a run one morning. And um, and you know when you get to that point of running where you and I'm sure you've chatted to uh, Paul a lot about um, running in his sure. podcast, but you get where you forget you're running but you're just sort of almost floating yeah and, yeah and, and i found myself grinning and um and then two little white-tailed deer ran out on the path in front of me which stopped me in my tracks and i sort of stopped and smiled at these little amazing deer and then um there was uh spider monkeys in the tree above me and they started shouting and like throwing bits of leaves and their own poo and stuff at me and i just thought do you know what why would i want to go back to london why would i want to um you know sit behind a desk where admittedly I'm not going to earn as much money, but I could just be having these sort of experiences. I could be mm. living next to nature, doing conservation work, which is inherently quite wholesome anyway, and um, and giving, you know, young people this amazing life changing experience. Mm. So it was um, that 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 moment was definitely life changing. Yeah. yeah. So how because th- this was this was really the start now of everything for you, right? This trip to Belize. So just how exactly did you get this job? There was um, a list of very boring um, jobs provided by a com- an organisation called the Officers Association, mm-hmm. and it helps ex-military, well, it helps military officers get jobs in Civvy Street. And um, what's that? And the Civvy Street is Civilian Street, um, just bang for you know the real world, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I all the jobs were really painfully dull and then at the bottom there was one that said expedition leader in belize and and i just thought i never thought it would be something that i did forever i always thought it would be just a stopgap yeah. while the market 
was bad and whilst whilst I couldn't get a job but but um there was something just in, inherently it, it was all the nice stuff about being in the military the being outdoors the working in groups the team camaraderie mm. um being like a part of parties, a family you know, almost right you do become but, like but, a part yeah, of a family but it was it was more honest and it was more real and there were there were more genuine people there doing good things to and being nice to each other and i just thought this is an environment i feel far more comfortable in um you know that yeah sure but some, i mean you didn't know that yet you you hadn't joined yet well, well no but but it, i didn't I, I as i joined it it was um it was just a stopgap but very quickly was absorbing you know there's a, there's different energies about different institutions and different companies and different jobs isn't it and that just felt right from it the very felt beginning. right exactly um, so it yeah. was just literally you went down this list you saw that and it just felt right yeah 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 and i mean you applied and then you got the job so yeah applied and got the job but i mean we're we're, we're talking sort of we're going back and forth from a chronological perspective i mean what i meant when i said it felt right was that it felt right once i got there um, okay it was very, very quickly felt right I, in terms of why I actually took the job and why I selected it. It was, you know, probably was still back in the, in the, in the realms of, well, you know, let's do geography instead of mechanical engineering because it's easier. I just thought, well, that's an excuse for a job, isn't it? You know, that's not very hard. I've just got to take a load of 18 to 24 year old, 18 to 24 year old school leavers to the jungle and do some camping. And, 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 uh, I just thought that's amazing. So, so I think it was less. It was less a sort of moral decision or, or, or a sort of, it wasn't a life decision even. It was just like, this is an excuse for, 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 um, doing something for the next four months. And it, it was when I got there when I realized actually this is a whole, this is a potential career for me. This mm. is, this is not going to be very well paid because mm. I hadn't worked out the transition between that and television at that point at yeah. all. But I, I but I, I, I just felt safe. I felt at home and, and, and I've always had an affinity to nature as well. I grew up in the countryside and we were building dams and tree houses and dens and stuff like that. And, and somehow walking back into the jungle, even though I'd never been to the jungle before at that point, walking into the jungle was just almost like coming home. It yeah. was just like, there's a feeling, isn't there? When you're underneath a forest or in a wood that is just, um, I think it, it, there was a security. It makes most human beings that I've spoken to anyway, makes them feel safe, makes them feel secure. And, and I didn't find the, the jungle any different. I, I, I didn't find it scary. I found it, it had a really good energy to it. Yeah. Mm. So because you talk about you, you just, you just took that job just because you thought, okay, well, this would be easy or whatever. But, um, I mean, so for you, do you think it was like, just in terms of like psychologically, do you think it was sort of traveling the path of least resistance almost like as a, you know, let me do this because this looks easy. Do you know what I mean? It's like the path of least resistance as opposed to, you know, going and sitting in some office or having to go and, you know, like. Well, potentially I I think in answer to that, I mean, I, I believe in the law of attraction and and I hadn't even heard of the law of attraction at that point, but, but I think I've always believed that I was a good person. I've always believed that I wanted to live in a sort of wholesome environment. I wanted a happy family. I wanted, you know, good things. And mm. I think, you know, if, if you have a certain energy, then you attract, attract what you give off, I think. And mm. although I stumped into it, um, uh, you know, I you think everything happens it. for, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. 
So what year was that? You said um, also because of the market not being so great. Was What year was that then? Um, when you went 2000, to 2002, I believe. Okay, yeah. okay. So, okay, cool. So you were there for a year? Huh? Mm-hmm. Okay. No, um, sorry, the jungle expedition was, the initial one was... Three months. Uh, three months. Yeah. Um, so that came home. Um, there was another one coming up, did that. And I think over the course of sort of the next seven years or so, I did, I did multiple expeditions. Um, okay. Um, three or four to Belize, a couple to Borneo, one to Guyana. Um, and it was, um, it, it was great in the fact that, you know, I didn't have a single bill coming out of my accounts. I had a pay as you go phone, you know, no outgoings because you had to sort of adapt to that sort of lifestyle. Mm. The pay was, was so terrible but yeah. um but you know while you're on expeditions it was brilliant and when you're at home you were you were crashing on mates floors or going and staying at your mum's or whatever so i didn't have a i didn't have a sort of any stability of, of course at that point and yeah. so when you did everyone was asking you know when are you going to get a proper job when are you going to grow up when are you going to stop this flitting around the world you know doing these children's expeditions um you know and and, and no and and yeah there wasn't Nobody really got it from a from a career move. They kind of thought he's chucked in a very good job with the military and he's now mucking around. Really, I think. And, and mm. yeah, for me, it was it, it, it was making much more sense than that. Yeah. So that was okay. So that was for about seven over the period of about seven years. And I mean, like, did you ever have partners in that time? I mean, you're a, a man, like. Yeah. So you would just you would always meet people when you came back here, back to the UK, or. No, I mean, I, I, I had a couple, uh, um, of, you know, the, there were other staff members who were, who were, um, women and, and I had a, I had a lovely, lovely relationship from, from, um, those days, um, called Chloe and, and, um, you know, she was originally, she was a volunteer on an expedition, but nothing happened between us then. And yeah. then she came back a staff member, um, was a couple of years younger than me, but we got on like a house on fire. And so that very quickly led into being a relationship and we ended up going down to, Patagonia um, in Argentina together um, and led cold weather expeditions for a different um, organization called Global Vision International. Yeah. But again, international volunteers on on conservation trips. So, so yeah, no, it was um, it was it wasn't a barren time. It wasn't like I wasn't having relationships. So I, I, <laughs> yeah. there had to be um, something in there for 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 your uh, yeah for your manhood. Do you know what I mean? Like seven years in the jungle. Course. <laughs> of course, yeah. So and like. It yeah. was intermittent. You're doing two or three expeditions a year in each one three months. So you've still got, I was staying about five months at home, I think, and, and about seven months overseas at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So then, okay. So you finished, you, you stopped doing this, this sort of intermittent work in about 2000. So then was about 2009 about. So that all went through to, no, about 2007. Okay. Um, in 2007, I was just getting itchy feet. Slightly getting disillusioned with, with, um, with just young people and expeditions. And, you know, you get a sort of apathy to tourism, really, because you're just doing the same thing over and over again with a different set of people. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I'm being a bit, I'm, a, I'm over exaggerating, but, but, um, I think I'd, I'd begin to lose, lose my sort of zest for, um, for it and, and had, what I think is is fair to say was quite an egoic sort of drive to do something off my own back that was that was for myself, and so that's what that's what led me to look to do a, 
a bigger expedition, but one without paid volunteers, basically. And then, then that was this two-year trip in the Amazon. Which was, which was two years walking the Amazon. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So then, did you get the TV involved? Like, how did TV come into your life? Um, <clears throat> I we'd done a little promotionary video when I was down in Argentina. Um, just so that they could sell more trips to volunteers. And okay. as a result, I'd, I'd met this filmmaker called um, Craig Langman. And he was primarily an editor, actually. He does programs like I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Yeah. And uh, when I announced to him that I was going to walk the Amazon, he's like, you've got to take a camera. You've got to film it because that's the most nuts thing I've ever heard of. Yeah. And if you if you don't record it, then you know, that's just such a waste of an amazing opportunity. So we convinced a production company in London that were called Ginger TV um, and convinced them to give us a couple of cameras mm. and tape stock. And, and, and literally, I had half a day's camera training in Streatham Common in London. And then... Um, and what's yeah, in London? Sorry? Camera Stratton, training? Streatham Common. Oh, in Streatham Common, yeah. It was yeah. A, park, a park in South London. Yeah. And, uh, and um, they basically ran me through the very basics of what shots that I needed to do in order to make it television program yeah. and um and then and then yeah packed my bags and and, and went and <laughs> okay wait and, so hold uh, on a sec so so craig layman <laughs> i mean you, yeah. you you talk about this you know it's funny because obviously this is your life so for you it's just you know it's it's just the next step and the next step and the next step but you know for yeah. people listening um they also have these dreams and they're hearing your story and they're thinking yeah but how you know like you know, I mean, obviously you, you came across that list and we understand because, you know, I'm talking about now when you first took that job through after the military, you know, it, it, it stumbled yeah. upon, upon you. But, uh, later on, uh, you know, I want to find it like, anyway, I'll, I'll go into that, but in just in terms of what's attracting all of this, but, um, Craig Lehman, like you say, oh, you, you met Craig Lehman. Like, how did you meet this guy? Um, because the, the company that I was working for in Argentina, sent a um a filmmaker over to make a promotional video okay so it was so, literally so that's how I met him. yeah 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 um and yeah he became a good friend and 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 throughout walking the amazon he's a co-producer on, on the he's credited on the walking the amazon documentary which ended up being commissioned by discovery channel and you know again it's a little bit of just synergy put yourself in the right place and suddenly uh, walking the amazon was so like that so many things could have gone wrong but didn't and so many mm. things were fortuitous um i mean it was if, if i'm not racing ahead too much i mean there was there was a time in walking the amazon where i needed to i needed to walk to a village which was in the middle of the jungle called porto seguro and it was in brazil mm. and it was about 10 days walk away and in the little village as i was preparing to get to porto seguro there were, three, were you three with this other guy or were you alone i, I was with um <clears throat> I'm probably telling this all out of order, but but I was with um, Cho, who was a South American um, um, guide that I picked up after about five months of walking the Amazon, mm -hmm. um, and um, um, and we hired two local um, Tacuna guides. And Tacuna was the tribe around around this particular point. But but in the village, there were three different people who told me that the the, uh, the village we were trying to get to, Porto Escuro, was in three different places. So I marked them all on my map and annotated the map and. Two of them were like 27 kilometers apart, which in the middle of the jungle is a long distance apart. And so we started walking and quite often, although I got a GPS, I'd only really turn it on at night. 
in order to check navigate and so we were using a compass so quite often we were just using the sun actually and in the morning you know you'd, you'd, you'd walk east so you were just following the sun and in the evening you'd follow your shadow and and that was so it was quite rough navigation and obviously you've got loads of trees to walk mm. around and everything like that now after <clears throat> seven days we didn't obliquely hit a path but we hit the very end of a meter wide path that led down about a kilometre into this village, which, when we asked the name, was was indeed called Porto Seguro. No, so and it wasn't in any of the three places <laughs> that I'd got. Oh my word! But we hadn't we hadn't just stumbled into the back of the village. We'd hit this path absolutely dead on. And if if any one of those decisions to go left or right around the tree over the seven days had been mm. different, then we wouldn't have hit the end. And so there is a huge part of me that it's an analogy rather than rather than that specific story but there's no way that we could have hit the end of that part you know to get a meter when you're just using the sun to navigate is just billions to earn i reckon um and yet so many things like that would happen so many things would be fortuitous and would land in my lap that i kind of just ended up i'm not religious but i end up having this inherent belief in in the expedition and and kind of knew it was gonna not in an arrogant way either um but i kind of knew that we were going to finish it because Everything appeared to be on side from a mm, mm. from a um, environment perspective. Yeah, but I mean, so that you, what you're I mean, what you're saying there is also the fact that this comes from the fact that you had a you had a self belief. Like, is it the belief that you believe that you know that led you to your destination? Do you know what I mean? Was this innate belief yeah. that it was going to be okay? I don't. I don't. It certainly wasn't trying to believe i think you know since i have latterly found out about things like the law of attraction you know you think oh that's brilliant if i just think about that then it will happen and because you're trying to do it somehow sometimes quite often it doesn't work does it because you're trying too hard and you're sort of second guessing it in this and the other but yeah for some reason i did just have an inner confidence about that and 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 um I could see myself running down the beach into the ocean, but not in a sort of I've mentally visualised this. So that I <laughs> not in this sort of, um... but but just 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 I kind of quietly knew it was gonna it was gonna come to fruition, and I think it was the the knowledge that it would that that somehow I don't really believe in coincidences. I think the co- coincidences happen when when the universe is realigning. You know, when when wow, wow, that's an extraordinary coincidence. No, it's not. It's it's that the things are realigning in order to for that thing to occur. Mm. And, 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 and I think there's too many really random coincidences for them to be, for that word to actually be true. I don't think it is. I don't think that things are luck. And, and, and I think you sort of make your own luck in that respect. But when people say they make, you make your own luck, I think that is, it's what you think about is what you focus on that influences how your life goes i think sure yeah. but and obviously people that have re- sort of researched the whole law of attraction it's very important that it's body mind and soul right everything needs to be right. connected so you can't just keep okay. thinking 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 and then miraculously no, it's going to happen yeah yeah and uh, yeah i know i it happens very innately and naturally to me with walking the amazon but i genuinely think that was probably why i got to the end and yet once i found out about it i have just done it as a far more crude level where I've just been trying to think about 10 million pounds <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and lo and behold 10 million pounds doesn't appear because it, it isn't mind body and soul and and there's a bit of you that quite frankly doesn't actually want 10 million pounds anyway because you know you had I've had quite a varied life and I've seen the uber wealth and, and I actually don't want 
don't want to be involved in that either, quite frankly. Um, I just want to have a nice, comfortable life with it, with enough security that my family are okay, I suppose, nowadays. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, no, I, I do believe in it, but I think, yeah, it's... It, well, I don't believe... You can bring, you you can bring things about. I don't think yeah. I, I don't believe that you just want a nice, comfortable life, Ed. I mean, if you hear the, you know what I mean, the decisions that you make. I mean, going mm. to the military is not a. You know what I mean? You you have been making these decisions to constantly put yourself in circumstances yeah, but, that are not. Yeah, but it's been a journey, and I think I think yes, undeniably. But I was a different man. The 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 reckless. 33 year old that walked the Amazon was a very different to the, to the dad and husband, sure. 44 year old that I am now. And sure. I've come on a journey and, and, and it partly it's been because of, because of the adventures that I've gone on that are often quite humbling. And, you know, often you get sort of beaten down to a kind of very raw version of yourself before you come up with solutions to problems or, or ways around an obstacle or something. And then, then, then you're growing and you're, you're evolving as a human being. And I think, I do think. Adventures are an amazing sort of um, crucible for um, for for self development. Actually, I think I think I've I've become a much more decent person as a result of um, of going through all of this. But it's mm. not been sailing at all. You know, I I the whole of walking the Amazon, I was having so many battles and wars in my own head and angers and frustrations because I didn't have much self awareness and I didn't didn't really understand um, anything about sort of psychology or anything like that. So. So it's been a it's been a bit of a long journey, but I do think I can talk from that perspective now. Because, mm. But because I mean, you talk about battles in your head. So I mean, like I've been lost in a mountain before growing up in South Africa, and it got dark, mm. and my mom's knee caved in. So I thought, as my little you know brave little me, I'm going to run down the mountain and you know save the day, and ended yeah. up sort of getting separated from my brother and my parents, and then I was alone, and suddenly I was in the middle of the mountain, just hearing these bloody baboons everywhere, and you know, so I just well, decided to sit and hope that suddenly they would catch up with me because pitch black. Yeah. But, you know, it's like you talk about these demons or whatever, how you didn't say the word demons, but psychological, you know, challenges and so forth. But I mean, uh, you know, that's, it's intense, you know, when you're in the Amazon, you, you, you haven't even once mentioned it yet, but I mean, obviously I guess it goes without saying, but I mean, they're the most freaking scary insects, animals there. So, you know, when I interviewed that other guy who I said who had also done a whole thing on his own in the Amazon, like one thing he spoke about was how he really just had to like become a part of nature. For him, like that became almost the way to deal with it, you know, like to just literally become a part of it, you know, like he slept in trees and et cetera. But like how like how did you go about this? I mean, you didn't have did you you didn't have a whole crew with you, right? You were filming yourself. Right. Filming myself, I uh, didn't have, just had people that I met along the way. Um, one of whom walked with me for two years, but but he, he was an amazing guy, so he was very supportive. I think, um, I don't think the Amazon's scary at all. And I think this is this is where I would differ from the other guy that you've um, interviewed. I think I've made a career out of the concept that the Amazon is scary. I've made, I've been very successful because everyone thinks that it is super scary, but I don't think it is at all. I mean, you know, the, I take one example, piranhas. Everyone thinks that if you fall in a river, that piranhas are going to strip you to the bone. And, you know, you've only got to be on the river for a few nights to see, you know, children fishing for piranhas with a hook and line. Mm-hmm. And then other children next to them dive bombing into the water. And, and yeah, they're absolutely fine. And, and so, we, you know, slowly you go, okay, so that worry 
was unjustified. And then, you know, if you come, <laughs> okay, that was you Hollywood. Come, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, then, then, then you come across a snake and then you come across another snake and, you know, they're not all trying to hunt you down and bite you. And, 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 and then, you know, you, you can hear jaguars around you and yeah, they're keeping themselves to themselves and they don't really want to be seen. And, and I just think, I think people are scared of the unknown, aren't they? And the jungle is to most people very much the unknown. And I think, for me, I, I did feel an affinity to it because just because I've always felt quite comfortable in nature. But but the more time you spend, the less the less there is to be scared of. I think, and and so I did. Listen, I get that. I get that. I, get need, that. I, mean, I didn't find a need yeah. to calm myself in that respect. The the, the, the dangerous bits were the, were the people that we met along the way, definitely. The people. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it was always people. It was always it was human dangers that were the biggest ones. Like in. In Peru, um, we had to go through the red zone, which is the drugs trafficking area of Peru. Two thirds of the world's cocaine at the time was grown in this area before it was shipped up to Colombia for processing and stuff. But the headwaters of the Amazon go straight through it. So we were told many times that if I stumbled into a drugs processing plant, that I would just disappear and no one would ever hear from me again, mm. um, which was quite ominous. And, and, you know, I was having to get permits and permissions of, of people that were you know, very much involved in the drugs trafficking. And then they would just literally laugh at me and say, look, Ringo, you're going to die. And and um, and then that spilled into an area of very closed off indigenous tribes. And the tribal people have been treated horrendously by the Peruvian government and, and driven off their land by the drugs traffickers as well. And, and so they're in this constant state of alert, sort of defensiveness. Mm. So they weren't very happy with a white person walking through either. So With and, the and, camera. You know, with it. Well, yeah, but I was quite discreet with the camera and I, I was quite, I didn't bring it out. But part of the fact that I don't think Walking the Amazon is an amazing documentary is, is because I was quite cautious with the camera, especially with drugs traffickers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You don't really <laughs> want to whip out a camera with them. But, um, <laughs> no. No, it was, it was human. I mean, I was arrested for murder. I was arrested for suspected drugs trafficking. Um, it was. Um, Seriously? It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did um, you go to uh, jail? Yeah, well, I was put locked up. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't exactly call it a jail. It was a, like a a tin hut in the middle of the jungle with four blokes outside with shotguns. Yeah, oh, my word. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's... But what did you do with your camera then? Surely they would have de- confiscated your camera. But yeah, no, they confiscated everything and they went through all of our kit. And But it was daft, things like... Part of me was scared because they were they were clearly scared of me. So therefore, their behaviour was quite erratic. And mm. but like the tribal chief claimed that my passport wasn't valid because the queen hadn't personally signed it. So you like half of you scared, and then half of you thinks you're in a fucking Monty Python sketch or something like that. <laughs> yeah. it, it, uh, kind of comical. And like the, we, the, a, a, a journalist from the Guardian had been out with me walking to do an article um, on the expedition, and so he was on the permit that I then had while I was arrested, and. Um, and um so the tribal chief said well you need to prove and he'd gone home this this journalist he was called mark and um and the tribal chief said look we how do we know that mark's not hiding in the bushes outside the village waiting to you know kill us or whatever and and it's just you know Mm. how how can you prove that somebody's not there (laughs) and they're back in england you can't can you yeah and he went through mark was had also been an author and and so he left a couple of his books with me and so the tribal chief during this i think it was about an eight hour sort of grilling and going through all my kit he went through every single page of mark's book like examining <laughs> it and i was just like no but i mean what looking f- because he can't read english i can imagine so no i, I doubt he was very literate in, in spanish even but um um 
but he he no he, more so than a lot actually that that guy was more so than a lot of the tribal members most of them most of the village couldn't even speak spanish as we were going through the indigenous mm. villages maybe the tribal chief and another couple of um adult males could speak spanish but none of the women could because they were all speaking shipibo or shanaka or one of the different local tongues i think it's 35 or 36 in in peru alone mm. um so I, yeah, it was that, and 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 then if you double the effect, things like the effects of alcohol. Now, indigenous folk are you know quite notorious for not having a great tolerance for alcohol, but but they absolutely loved it, and because these guys have gone through quite horrific trauma in recent times, like the Shining Path is the communist guerrilla movement that mm-hmm. swept through the swept through Peru in the eighties and nineties, and yeah. so these guys have seen and been part of a lot of bloodshed and killing. Yeah. But then when they now get drunk, the amount of domestic violence, the amount of women that get um, beaten up every single time these get, those guys get drunk. And so that was then also an issue because if you came to a village and you heard that the tribal chief was drunk, crikey, we just we just started walking faster and just hoped we could get out of there mm, and stuff. And mm. It was just so unpredictable. So, yeah, it wasn't... What Jack, did they it was, drink? It up in the in the sort of um, upper reaches, it was this sort of um, quite weak um, drink based on a sort of yucca or um, manioc plant, which was called masato. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, that that must have only been about two or three percent alcohol. But they drank it all day long. Yeah. Um, and then all day, Latin- all day, all week, or just in the weekend, or. Uh, all day. That was drank all all the way through the day, yeah, every day. Yeah. Um, so maybe it wasn't even two or three percent. Maybe it was one or two percent because it, they weren't drunk all the time. Mm. But then as we went down the river, it was more cheap spirits that were just being brought brought in from local towns. And okay. There had been quite a lot of oil prospectors gone through there, um, acquiring the drilling rights for uh, land below the. I think the government actually sold it from underneath the indigenous guys, so they only own their land down to two meters or something mm-hmm. below the surface of the land. And so the government then sold the oil rights for all of the minerals and oil below it and mining and, and stuff. And so, and, and, but the tribal chiefs thought that they were extraordinarily wealthy and they'd been given, you know, 5,000 US dollars or something uh, for the yeah. entire, for the entire rights to the, to the oil beneath their village. Oh. And they then had enough money for everyone to be drunk all the time. Yeah. Um, and they would, yeah, filthy villages. By that point, you know, standards have completely fallen apart. Um, there's litter and trash everywhere because it's all come in from outside towns. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, not not nice at all. And and then for some reason, the Peruvian government have got quite a long track record of, of of not supporting the indigenous, and they're almost well, they are racist against them. Quite frankly, they yeah. consider them lesser lesser human beings. So, um, yeah, sad really, um, because then the the tribes that that had held it together, there were quite a few that had banned alcohol and they were just such a different, such a different experience. You'd come in and there were these beautiful little gardens that were perfectly tended with stones delineating the border and, mm. you know, oh, just kids with big smiles. And, you know, th- there is that romantic notion of a little, you know, tribal community in the, in the Amazon. It still exists, but they've had to really, they've had to really kind of um, walk against the tide in terms of the, the sort of sweeping negative influence of alcohol definitely yeah and is it that so i mean it's like in huh, in south africa you are, you know that's why they've banned alcohol there now you know during corona right. because you know that's exactly what happens is the mostly the men 
um, you know, they certainly in the more sort of rural areas, huh? In the in the more township areas. Yeah. You know, they which which I know from now that that film that I saw, you know, with you and Paul, Paul Gardner. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. you know, you went into these villages with him. But you know, so yeah. that's why they banned alcohol, because the men also they just get completely out of hand and then there's so much violence. So yeah. um Yeah. It, it's um yeah, it's super sad. I mean, it, it, it's the, you do get it across the world, don't you? There's, there's Maori tribes that have the same, yeah, you know, same problems, and Ab- Aboriginal Australians that that have similar problems. And, and I think it's you know, it's alcohol is obviously a, a, a poison, but and and but it's also it's also a disconnect, isn't it, from a more sort of wholesome way of living? Uh, certainly, with I've got a couple of very good Aboriginal Australian friends, and it's it, for them, it's a it's a disconnect from the land. You know, it's literally. The, the the connection to the land for them is so important. It's such a sort of literally grounding thing that allows them to 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 feel as though they have a place in the world. And then you know put them in an artificial house with artificial lighting and no real purpose in life. And and that's why that alcohol becomes a problem, not yeah. because 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 they're unhappy and disconnected from from that from, from that nature from nature. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, just to quickly go back and just to to um. Well, not correct, but so how the previous chap I interviewed, he wasn't scared, huh? So just to make that correction there, if he does ever hear this interview, because he'd probably be interested uh, okay. to hear it. But, so he wasn't scared, but my, my point was is that he became very in touch. You know, he just connected very much with nature. Like that was his sort of, but that was a part of his process. But I do, I do still find it interesting, even with him, but it, with you, I find it super interesting that you're very flippant and nonchalant about these you know animals and spiders and snakes and i mean for someone who didn't grow up in the bush or anything like i mean like seriously did you just it 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 was not a big deal for you to just go in there with your did you have a tent or like you slept in in the jungle um had a hammock um so so slept between two trees every night um yeah seriously i mean put it this way if you walk through johannesburg or cape town or um, you know, or London, there's lethal buses all around you. You're crossing a road where potentially there's a less than a second gap between you and a car that's then following quite behind you. You're jumping in traffic. You know, the 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 level of potential danger there is just vast. It, that would be like walking through snake after snake after snake after snake after snake after snake, which wasn't happening. You'd, you'd see one or two a day. Okay. Where it's, so, so I genuinely think it's all about perception. I genuinely think it's all about what people are exposed to and what people are used to because that would be utterly terrifying for a indigenous person to try and cross a road, uh, try and cross Oxford Street in London because they're killed by so many different things and they're coming yeah. from different, they're coming from different um, directions and he doesn't understand the laws of the road and he doesn't know potentially to look for the, the zebra crossing or whatever it is. And so it's complicated, it's confusing, it's noisy. And like compare that to, you know, the jungle where you might see one snake a day, but he knows that the snake's keeping itself to himself and won't attack him unless he has a snake. I mean, and then you start to go, okay, well, yeah, it, it's, it's a misconception. And I genuinely believe that. And as I said before, I've dined out on it. I, you know, I still do walking the Amazon talks to businesses 10 years later. And, you know, you mentioned the snakes and the anacondas and the jaguar because that's what people want to hear about, you know, because, um, they're fascinated by it all. Mm. But, but, um, 
But, no, um, I'm, I'm purely fascinated yeah. by just mentally how you how you made the adjustments. You know, you're a, I mean, you grew up in the country. Where did you grow up in England? Yeah, in England. I think, if, well, from a mental perspective, it wasn't anything to do with humans or the natural um, or, or the natural environment that, that were the difficult, most difficult thing to deal with. I think for me, it was it was trying to stay positive. Okay. And I, you know, day after day month after month and eventually year after year putting wet grimy trousers on getting bitten by mosquitoes getting getting bitten by ants um it just wore me down and 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 um i remember about two years into the expedition so i've got about four months left to go just the most minor thing would send me spiraling into real real desperate um mental places and and like for example cho who was the Peruvian that I met um, that walked with me for the vast majority of the journey, he he would be we'd agree to leave at seven o'clock in the morning. He'd be two minutes late packing his rucksack, and um, but and, and I would just start getting fumingly angry at him. Mm-hmm. Yes, just why did you even say seven o'clock? You know, you know, you don't care about the expedition. I mean, ridiculous. We've got four months left to walk, and I'm worried about two minutes. And and it would stay with me all day. And so what I ended up doing because. Um, I'd got a satellite phone, so I ended up calling an NLP um, expert, a neuro-linguistic programming yeah, yeah. guru, and um, and just just for some advice. So I literally had three half-hour chats with him, and he, he was it was it was layman stuff, really, but it was so useful because he said, "Look, you've been away from your family and friends for you know two years now. Mm. You've had no contact with them. You're so obsessed with getting to the end that anything that that gets in the way is is causing this utter sort of fury because it's." Because cause you've only got one sort of mission in life at the moment. You've got nothing else that you're focused on at all. So everything's out of perspective. Mm. Um, and so it, it was. He gave me a number of little layman tips on how to sort of regain perspective and how to how to how to sort of um, step out. And of myself. tell me what 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 were those tips? That's nice for people to hear because I mean we're also okay. going through a time where it's crazy for people, and you know it's one. Of, yeah. Okay. Well. Yeah. I mean one one of the things that I um. That he asked me to do is like, well, okay, when you feel yourself just at the brink of starting to, to sort of plummet into one of these desperate, um, desperate, sort of almost childlike mind states, he's just said, imagine somebody that's been really inspirational in your life. Imagine mm-hmm. they were just standing next to you. And um, my first sergeant major in the military was a guy called Mark Hale, and he was a he was a big rugby player. He was about six foot two. Mm. He'd got a big scar across his face from fighting when he was younger. Um, he was doing it, but he wasn't as like a typical squad. He'd got an MSc in psychology. Um, he, um, was a devout Christian and he just had a, he just had an aura about him. You know, when people have kind mm-hmm. of made it, like rugby players are quite a good example of this. They're not showy. They're not flashy. Mm. They're just so comfortable in their own skin and they give off this really positive aura. And so I just, I thought about Mark and I just thought if it, and, and, and I would envisage him like looking at me with a sort of bemused smile on his face going, sir, what, what are you doing? And it was just <laughs> yeah. enough for me to step outside of myself and go, I'd never behave like this if yeah. I was around. Never behave like this if any of anyone else was around, you know? Mm. And, um, and, and it, it just allowed everything to come into perspective. And, and you know, that, that particular story is made all the more pertinent because I, um, I never checked the internet for, um, for the news because I didn't have enough, um, bandwidth or battery power normally but the, but shortly after this I, I, did, I decided to check the internet and the first article that came up on the BBC website was 
soldier dies in an explosion in Afghanistan, and, oh. and it was, and it and and, and uh, I remember reading it, and then thinking I was going mad, and and deciding I'd made it up, and then reread it, and and invariably it sank in, and he had died, and I just remember being completely bowled over by the enormity of of the fact that he was dead, and then and also the the, the weirdness of um of the fact that he'd come back into my life so recently um, in order to help me to stay positive. And, and, you know, the even more spooky thing, just talking about all these coincidences and synchronicity in life, Mm. was that he died on the day that I started envisaging him. I mean, it was extraordinary. Oh, my gosh. I get goosebumps. Yeah, I mean, it really, uh, that's, I've I've got goosebumps even recounting the story and I've I've recounted that so many times. Uh, It it was the most remarkable thing. And so, yeah, I... They carried on using him for the rest of the journey in, in, in terms of using him is probably the wrong term, but, you know, I would envisage him. And I mm. just thought, well, you know, he, he he's responsible for the last few months of the expedition being a lot more positive, actually. Wow. Um, but, um, you know, but it was, it's, it's interesting because, you know, from someone who's lived in a f- different, few different countries and, you know, when we have our references around us, and that was exactly what the, I'm, I'm an NLP coach, by the way, as well, but. Oh, are you? Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. But, um, this has got nothing to do with that, but I understand what he was mentally trying to do for you. So, but what's interesting is when you, you know, when you grow up in a certain environment, you have references around you. So, you know, you're still in England. You, you have all these references. You might not be in the same town that you grew up in or, you know, but it's, it's having these references, even to the reference of the sweet that you might eat or, um, a sound you'll hear when you wake up in the morning. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. references that, that are your guiding beacons. They make you. Yep. It just it just guides you, you know. And suddenly you were put in a situation where you had no references around you that were familiar, and that was so incredible because he, I mean, it was so simple, but he gave you a reference in an environment where there weren't any, and that's that's what made you just connect with yourself again. Yeah, yeah, no, it was very clever. You're right, it, but 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 like the most clever things, it was very simple as well. It was. Um, it was just a, a simple trick that he knew that I could do without having to take time out. Really, I could literally just imagine imagine Mark's face, and, and, it, and it did work. And and um, I think that was for me that was the beginning because I think the expedition, the amount of time spent on my own, the amount of time in my own head, mm-hmm. the kind of time frustrations of wanting to get to the end day after day after day, had got on top of me, and yet. That from from that point when I, I started to recognize that you had some sort of influence over your own inner state that I just thought if I was before that I thought if I was angry I'm angry and if I'm sad I'm sad I can't fucking do anything about it yeah. but then I realized that you know I'm I'm actively doing something by being sad and if I just you know accept the situation and see what's in front of me but do, but decide not to choose sadness or anger as a as a particular emotion because it's, it might not be appropriate. Then I, I, I had no idea that you could actually influence, influence how you felt in that, in that manner and manage it, I suppose. Mm. And, and, um, you know, again, that journey has been a massively long one for me as well. But, um, but that's evolved over doing, you know, when Amazon finished and moving into TV and stuff, that, that there were some pretty tough survival challenges along the way that, 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 that has taken that to, to deeper levels definitely as well. And what what are you referring to? Well, um, I think 
I've lost my train of thought in the fact that well, what were we referring to? No, well, Mark? so basically you you were talking about, I mean, you, you definitely, like, you yeah, I mean, obviously you, 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 what I've said before, you know, okay. you're putting yourself in these situations where, where you are, you know, you're evolving, you know, you, you're literally yeah. physically putting yourself in these situations where you're evolving on all levels. And, but what I just quickly want to come back to is you talk about the fact that you just had like a few months left, you know, and it was so freaking difficult. And, and you were, you know, you were so impatient and you were unreasonable and you were just, you know, I mean, could you have given up? You could have, right? Of course. I mean, yeah. uh, yeah, I suppose I could have done. Exactly. But so what's interesting is, you know, for people listening now, you know, this is the thing is that our goal, I mean, you had a, a set definitive goal, right? You could see the flag at the end. But, you know, the thing is life as a whole is one big goal it's one big journey in a way you know because you yeah. you are trying to get to destinations otherwise you you you're floating i mean even even the people living in the rural villages that you talk about the ones that are connected with nature they've got mm. their their goals of of farming their goals of daily household chores their goal you know what i mean everywhere it's yeah. a human thing and it's so um I, yeah my, my, my take on that is that mine was a sort of a uh, kind of angry determination to get there. It was like okay. blasting everything out of the way. It was, you know, not giving enough time to the people that I walked with or, you know, not learning the medicinal plants that I could have learned along the way or mm. not, you know, enjoying each moment. And, and I was so determined and so fixated on the end that it, 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 it that it made the whole thing a lot harder. And mm. I think had I, had I had a lighter touch, and I think that's where, you know, your indigenous tribe, you know, okay, they've got things that they need to do during the day, but, but they're still in a good mood and they're all singing and chatting to each other. Mm. If, you, if you hold those aims in a, in a sort of looser grip, I suppose, so it's not just this bullish determination, that actually it's a really positive flow, I suppose, mm -hmm. um, and that you're still going to get there. You know, you don't have to grip these things that tight in order to get there, as long mm. as know where you're going to go you can release it a little bit and it just allows it all to relax and you know certainly if we are going down the lines of it being parallel to life i mean no one wants to get to the end of life anyway do you so i mean yeah you kind of that's the worst bit isn't it getting to the end because then it's over and, and 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 so you know in in some respects the same with the expedition you know, once it was over it was just over you know you're not a different man you've not you've not well you hopefully you are and i was a little bit more evolved but you know, you go back home and you you go into the pub and you might as well not have left. You know, people haven't changed and this, that, and the other. And you think that somehow you're going to magically be, be transformed, but but life life continues as normal, doesn't it? And so, I don't know. I think I think uh, there's, there's quite a few sort of lessons within that, isn't there? But I think for me, um, that being able to loosen my grip on the things that I want in life a little bit without letting go of hopes and desires, I think that's been quite helpful, actually. So do you actually, are you able to do that? Because that's a life skill that a lot of people could, uh, could do with. I think I do. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I used to, I used to be a lot more difficult to be around during the working day. I think because I used to, I used to be quite strict with myself and I used to work really hard and I do make definitely time, for example, throughout the day to stop and have a cup of tea with Laura. Not when we're distracted on our phones or whatever, just to, chat about what we've done in the morning Laura and stuff. being and your wife right Laura is my wife yeah. yeah and and just having the space 
in the, in the day to be able to actively reflect on the day and mm. chat during the day. But I would, I would, you know, consider myself to be far more sort of dutiful human being to work ridiculously hard all day long, not take breaks and get to the end of the day and fall into bed and go to sleep. It's mm. like, but that, that is where you really are just churning through your life at this sort of frantic pace. And so I do actively now try and make sure that, you know, if I look back on my life, probably my mid forties, my wife's in her late twenties. This is, this is the prime of our life. You know, I've got mm. a TV show, Discovery Channel. If this isn't what we're enjoying, what we've got one little boy who's three years old, two twin girls on the way about to be born. If these aren't the best moments of our life, then we're doing something wrong, aren't we? And yet you can get into this mind state of going, wait, but I just need to earn money to pay the bills and do this and do this. And I, so I, so I do really, really actively time to play with the little boy, time, time with my wife, just to chat and reflect and show a bit of appreciation for her and, and ask her how her day is and stuff. Mm. And I, 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 that wasn't, that wasn't me 10 years ago. I wouldn't have had to, but so why? I would have thought that that was wasted time. Yeah. 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 But I mean, why, why do you think you were so bullish as you use the word bullish? Why do you think you were so bullish with, with us? Like, what were you trying to, like, what do you think you were trying to approve? I mean, prove or like, were you, because were you trying to prove something to somebody or was it? Yeah. 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 You hit the nail on the head actually. Yeah, I would. Um, Okay, so I've, I've answered this in numerous interviews okay. at a more superficial level, but but I think you're you're after you're after depth. I think, Jen. Yeah, <laughs> so sorry, I mean the real exactly. the real reason the real reason I think is a huge um, sort of traumatic insecurity from being adopted. Yeah. I had huge abandonment issues. I then, if my analysis of things is is roughly correct, I um. I adapted my own persona in order to fit in. So um, I very quickly lost sight of, of who I was and, and my own hopes and dreams and desires. I just like, you know, I, I, I was I was what psychologists describe as sort of doing a nice boy sort of, uh, I, I was polite to everyone. No one thought that anything was wrong. I was quite shy, but I was just trying to fit in. I was trying to be loved because you, you don't want to be, you don't want to be rejected and, uh, or abandoned again. Mm. And, and, um, and I think as a result of that, there was a huge insecurity that I would be abandoned and therefore a massive need to prove myself. But, but beyond, beyond what I think is a healthy desire to just, you know, show that you're relatively competent in life and that you can hold down a job and mm. hold down a relationship. I just, you know, I needed to beat my chest and shout on a, on a world stage, which is essentially the way, why anyone would spend two and a half years doing something inherently slightly unpleasant walking like the Amazon yeah. with all the dangers and stuff like that is because that's how deep the insecurity was and that's how much I felt like I needed to prove to the world that I was a capable uh, um, human being that was that was worthy I suppose um so it, it did come out of childhood trauma mm. and the, so, yeah the weird thing yeah. I wouldn't have I wouldn't change that for anything in the world like we I've, I've recently um just written a little article for um somebody on adoption and you know i think it i think anyone who goes through any sort of pain in life understands that you know these times sort of give you somehow you go through it and you your depth of character definitely expands mm-hmm. you know and you've got mm-hmm. a team to have almost even a greater range of emotions I, i'm sure i end up being more happy than people when i'm really happy 
and I I know I have the capacity to get ridiculously sad as well. Mm. But I think it it gives it gives a drive. It gives a a real carnal drive that um that that has that has got me to um achieve a lot of things in life. That said, I think the older I get and the more self aware I am, that 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 drive is being superseded by more of a wholesome desire as i said before to be comfortable and provide for my family and and live a nice life but i think that's only because of a lot of that healing has been done now if i'm honest mm. yeah um so how old were you when you adopted um eight weeks okay so, it's, so it's it's, best, you don't pre, have pre yeah yeah but i mean yeah. then you were so small like you you know what i mean how like do you still have contact with your old biological parents or not parents. I didn't, I didn't. I didn't for um, the vast majority of my life until about six years ago. The thing is, there's there's a um, there's a theory that, and I I do buy into this that um, you know, an infant when it's born, the only thing it can do in order to ensure its survival is to bond to its mother because mm. it's inherently helpless. Yeah. Uh, and so, if you detach a, a a child from its mother, it creates a trauma, a traumatic incident that is the equivalent to death. Basically, it's it's a it's a it that. It sounds like I'm being melodramatic, but you know, in an infant's eye that's been separated from its mother, it, it is as if it's being, you know, ripped in two, as if it's, sure. if it's dying. And, sure. And uh, if your personality starts to evolve from that point, your, your, even though it's pre-memory, even though that, and, and quite a lot of the therapy that I've done over it is, has been emotional stuff because because there aren't words for it because I didn't understand language at that point. It's an energy, and yet it's happened. It's yeah, and and you know. You know, she often comes out in, and had done in my, in my sort of late teens and early twenties in, in kind of huge anger and, and rage, really. But but that's that's not really what I'm I'm, I'm getting at. I just think that um, basically, I no, think, no. Listen, um, I totally understand what you're getting at. I, I, it's it's I, it's a connection thing, and there was a disconnect at eight weeks, and that that has had its impact. I I get it. Like I get yeah, it as a but, mom, even. But, but a million miles from the self story because because I think that's also given me a huge amount of um, drive in life and 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 you know then once you become comfortable with that and it just becomes a chapter in your book you know you don't have to keep going back and rereading it yeah. and opening up scars yeah. and stuff like that. it's just you know it's part of who made me who I am and, sure. I, and I and I wouldn't change the world because had I not had that determination I wouldn't have walked the Amazon I wouldn't have you know life would have been very different and 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 so um so I. I Weirdly, and it's funny, isn't it? I don't know. Are you a parent? Um, uh, so I've got two kids and two okay. ste- and and two stepdaughters who they were six and eight, and now they're twenty and eighteen. So my littlest okay. is two, and my uh, my, oh, my, uh, my my biological for oldest is um six. So yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so so I don't know whether you've had the debate in your mind. It's like. I know for a fact that it's the worst things in my life that have evolved me the most, that, that, that have given me the most drive, that have given me the, the most space to grow as a human being. And yet yeah. you've got, you don't want to do anything to your child that's going to be traumatic, don't you? Yeah. You, do, you don't want to expose them to anything that's not even going to be comfortable and make them good and make them happy. And, mm. and yet it's this um, weird conundrum whereby you know, you don't want them, therefore, to become superficial adults who have just had everything handed on a plate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm quite keen at exposing, certainly Ran is, is my first, you know, experiment of being a dad and, and exposing him to, to risk, to calculated risks. But just, you know, I want, I want, I want him to boy, boy, boy that falls down a lot and has to pick himself up mm-hmm. so that 
learn as much as possible. Again, within a, a relatively, um, you know, um, safe environment. But yeah, I mean, we've, we've, um, we've taken him into the, into the Guyanese, um, rainforest, um, when he was about eight months old. Mm-hmm. And, and we've, I, I'm very keen to, to expose him to enough to make sure that he's, um, I don't know, that he's just got enough all-rounded sort of depth of character to make him not, uh, you know, one of the superficial people who just doesn't have any hardship in life, I suppose. Yeah, yeah but having said that, to be honest, he's going to get his own hardship. Like, ha- you can't control that as a parent. Like, you can't control the hardship or the the... the you know, you can't control your child not having hardship. They're going to have hardship. So, um, no, but you can give them too much, I think, and you can make their life too easy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've got, you I've can got raise, friends abs- who have sure, you, you can raise a spoiled child, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah. just in terms of, you know, I, I, I get where you're coming from also. Um, but, um, you, you said two things. First of all, you're talking about the hardest lessons and I get that I've lost a brother. So for me, he's like, he's right. my, almost my twin brother. We like, I think just like over nine months apart and I lost him and I didn't get to say goodbye. So like for me, that's like my, that's impacted my whole life, you know, um, in terms of my drive and even to this conversation, you know, to this talk show, to this, to, to hosting platforms to, you know, to empower people and to inspire people to live a full life. Cause he was, you know, like you, he's very much an adventurer, crazy, you know, just always doing these, yeah, just ch- challenging his mind and his body and, you know, um, putting himself in these situations that would be challenging and, 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 and live a yeah. full life also, you know, th- I mean, that's something that, um, Obviously, you know, you're talking about your challenges, Ed, but you do, it's, it's beautiful because you live a full life and you, you talk about all these, you know, amazing natural places that you go to and it's, it's phenomenal. It's spectacular. It's, it's, it's a full life and it's so beautiful also how you're so open about your psychological challenges. Because let me tell you, there are more than half of the percentage of the world out there who are dealing with the exact same psychological challenges and not because they were adopted, but because of some other reason. And, you know, they don't have to walk through the Amazon. They'll, they'll, let's say that they'll never get, they they might never get the chance to, or they might never be inspired to walk the Amazon, but you know, you don't have to walk the Amazon as you also said, you know, to, to deal with these things. Um, you know, it's, um, it's, it's so it's for me it's just nice to reflect on your story and to to also just say it's it's beautiful that you share this you know um and you you have a platform Thank that you. you can empower people on and that's yeah i mean um your your hardest thing was that separation at 8 weeks and mm. you're using this now to you know to yeah to make the world beautiful and um and, but, but yeah, in closing also just with your, you know, your son and then, you know, your daughter soon, like, you know, they will get their own challenges, whether they like it or not. And whether you're in control of it or not, you know, in the same way I've yeah. had mine, my mom had no control over that, you know? Yeah. Um, but I suppose, yes. Yeah. No, I, I'm sure they will. And I, I don't want to add hardship to their life. I'm, I'm going over the top there. I just, it does go through my mind that, that it's, that it's kind of a conflicting, thing that you want them to become the best versions of themselves and yet and yet you don't you can't just give everything on a plate but yeah of course i don't want to i don't want to um add anything negative 
to their lives. It's just it's just this exploring that sort of little conundrum and, and and just just trying to bring them up in a way that is as wholesome as possible, I suppose. Yeah. yeah and I mean you know my my dad and you know I would say this to his face we have a very open family and you know he's he's a hard man but he brought us up in you know I was grew up in the bush you know hanging from land cruisers literally while my dad would be negotiating a almost 90 degree slope you know like he was a hunter and you know I, I grew up in a crazy environment and three older brothers very masculine dominated environment and he was a he's a hot you know he He's a hard person. He's an amazing person, full of life, loves people, loves conversation, but he's also been hard on us, tough on us, you know, not because he, but, but this is the difference is not because he, he was trying to be, to make us tough. He just was, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, I've, you know, I had conversations with all my brothers, you know, throughout our life about, and we also different in a lot of ways, but all also very similar in that we were fighters and we survivors, you know, although, you know, I lost one of my brothers, but, um, you know, it's, I, th I think that's like just by exposing your child to as much as, you know, exposing your child to who you are is is mm. is enough and just loving them and accepting them for the things that they choose in life you know i think that that in itself is enough yeah. and you already are aware of raising beautiful children so you're not going to spoil them till the cows kind of come home you know what i mean like because you were yeah. aware of it yeah yeah you're right yeah i'll, I'll go with that <laughs> yeah but um so yeah i mean I, I i get that we you know we're talking for a while and i haven't even gone into the rest of your like courageous adventurous life and this you know i could talk to you for hours obviously but um you know it's you've gone into far more detail than most people would yeah that's why i think i was talking at 100 miles an hour at the beginning of the uh, chat because i was just like oh, it's quite a lot to get through jen you know <laughs> <laughs> no but you know what? it's cool ed i mean we can chat again you know what i mean we can reconvene yeah, and have nice. part two and um but just so you know, because there's so much depth to it and it's amazing and you can really empower so many people, especially with your psychological sort of challenge that you had. And, you know, that's amazing and keep talking about it and keep sharing it because people need to feel empowered to talk about this stuff. You know, I've also had my own psychological stuff that's happened where, you know, I had a major panic attack six months after my daughter was born. So I understand what like major panic attack is yeah. you know borderline psychosis yeah. right so i i've been i've been there in my head and i think it's it's a very powerful conversation that needs to be had you know people are fearful we're living in an, in a time of our lives where there is so much fear and especially with corona now like unless you're a fighter and a survivor you know not everyone has that in them yeah no i agree i think it's nice to have that very open um safe space and i think it is getting bigger now it's very few people are, are condemning of, of people speaking out with mental health problems. I think it's um, it's come to a stage where it's almost accepted that you know the average person just needs to manage manage their mind in the same way as they keep on top of their mental uh, in in the same way as they keep on top of their physical fitness. Really, I think mm. you know the, it's it's increasingly open, and you know different parts of the world are moving at different speeds. I suppose so that I'm probably talking from a slightly biased perspective of mm. the the. the end up mixing with but but i do think it's heading in the right direction definitely and i'm very curious ed because it's actually super fascinating um here you are and you're doing all these challenges in these 
you know, in, in the jungles and these places where you have this history of, um, you know, the tribes, you know, this history of old medicine, old way of thinking. Um, it's interesting. I don't know if you've ever looked, looked it up, but you, you, you know, if you go and research like how these tribal, um, villages or tribal people, you know, look at mental health. Have you ever done that? No, no, I haven't. No. Because you I, must go, go and do that because I mean, I'm not a, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, I can't like factually like spill it out, but basically, you know, when people have a psychosis or when people have these mental breakdowns, you know, in, in modern, in the modern world, they put them in, um, what, um, a psychiatric ward, but in, in these tribal villages, they, they, they treat it, um, it's it's natural, like what's happening, like the, the the result of what's going on inside you, or the result, you know. The um, so if you have a panic attack or you have a psychosis, you have these things that happen, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's a result of something that's going on inside you, and your body is just working it out. But what's important is that you're in a safe space where you don't feel yeah. judged and you're in a safe space where you don't feel threatened by society around you, your body and your mind, you will work, you will work through it. Mm-hmm. But if, yeah. you, if you're in an environment like in our, in, in like the Western world, you go into psychiatric ward and look at the negativity on that. There's so much negativity put on psychiatric wards on, um, you know, you some mental health, but like other people, you know, there's just a lot of negative, um, terms around people who have mental health problems, or I'm not saying you do, huh? but we're talking about psychological challenges yeah. and it's just, um, I'm fascinated actually with the connection of the fact that you talk about this so much and literally you are taking yourself into these areas where they have a lot of, um, holistic approaches to this situation, to this, to, 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 to mental health. Yeah. I certainly, I certainly think, um, yeah, I, I do agree with that. Um, I think, um, I mean, I've had experience of being with Aboriginal Australians and a former partner uh, of mine, um, had a very, um, um, what's the right word, special needs child mm. who had Williams syndrome. Yeah. So initially different walk, difficulty walking, certainly difficulty um, tying sentences together, forming words, all that sort of stuff. Um, and the, you know, the, the work that the Aboriginal guys were doing, that was just extraordinary. And the transformation in her sort of whole demeanor was, was brilliant. And her speech came on loads and stuff from the stuff that they did. But what they said, was, which is why I'm talking about it, was that, uh, if she had been brought up in an Aboriginal, traditional, um, Aboriginal, um, village, that she would have been almost certainly, um, like a shaman or, uh, you know, one of the spiritual exactly. people in the village that was, that was utterly revered. You know, she, they said she's got such a spiritual connection mm. that you can't see, but she can. Um, and that, that, you know, she would be, I mean, again, a sort of protected, um, but, but re- really re- respected, um, member of, an Aboriginal community mm-hmm. in, in in the UK, you know, you know, it's like okay, having to find schools which can accommodate, which are you know potentially really nice, but but you're but you're essentially you're treated like an invalid rather than somebody who's genuinely special, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I know you're also involved in how, like you, you got involved in this. Um, it's not a charity, but what did you get involved with, with Paul? Some sort of. Um, well, he, he has a charity called CCF, doesn't he? That's, um, that's, uh, essentially a conservation, um, program in Africa that, um, that is, um, based out of the fact that his um dad set up the Shamwari game reserve and and um and did this amazingly amazing rewilding project and and um and yeah no I'm happy to be part of that it's not my main drive I mean I know Paul and I like him and he asked for some help on that project and I'm I'm more than more than more than happy um to um to help with conservation because I do feel an affinity to nature but if there was if there was where I if there was a place where I thought that I sat the best in order to help anything it's it's with young people who are who are sort of um going through similar things mm. kids that have been excluded from school uh from deprived backgrounds because they're just finding life tricky because i think but certainly that's where i feel like um, yeah yeah i feel like this, that i've been through will help, will help the most yeah yeah and yeah. that's um <clears throat> that's what i was going to say and uh, that's what I also feel hearing your story. And I mean, I, I, I haven't heard absolutely everything you're doing, you know, on the TV side and stuff. But um, you know, what I mean? I'm just connecting with you as a person, and I can hear that other stuff another time. But um, hearing and connecting these dots, I think you should seriously look into opening a cool clinic in one of these jungle areas. You know, for people to just go work through a couple of mental things, you know, where they feel like they don't feel like a you know, like a dumbass or a freaking psycho or a, you know, space cake or whatever, <clears throat> they feel just, okay, you know, I can have a psychosis, it'll pass through and I'll be okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Create a little jungle utopia where people can get, get better. Yeah, yeah and, just, nice. and not feel, and not <laughs> feel um, ostracized or feel um, like a misfit you know, or feel yeah. like they have a problem, but feel that it's just, it's natural and they're working through this process, you know? Anyway. There are those places. There, there are people that you can go and, go and do. Yeah, okay. Um, but I mean, I know there are loads of these kinds of places, but it's, um, it's yeah, I'm just hearing your story and the fact that you're constantly going mm -hmm. into these jungles, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, I just see that sort of connection there. But, but um, it. Yeah, I think I probably will. At some point, I started doing a master's degree in psychotherapy um, a couple of years, well, about five years ago now, but then met my wife, and you know what happens when you you fall in love, and extracurricular activities kind of fell out the way, so so um, so it, it never manifested, but potentially post-television, post post, post this sort of um, current window of opportunity, then yeah, that's probably a direction that I will get down. Yeah. yeah, although to really <clears throat> help people, you, you already have the certificate, do you know what I mean? Well, that's very kind of you to say, Jen. Well, it's it's your per you you live life. You live life. You understand it. <clears throat> yeah, but equally, you don't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't take your car to be fixed by a dentist, would you? You know. And I think there is a responsibility if you're if you are helping people coming out of mental health problems or especially with more serious mental illness that that you do do you do have an element of you know training in terms of meddling with stuff that you don't know about. Yeah. Yeah, okay, but is if that's if you're going to be a like an actual therapist. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed which, to which which opposed to someone who's just inspiring people to do healthy stuff. Or, or as opposed life. to as opposed to the sort of the manager the owner of the operation. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, okay. Yeah, but I get yeah, it. I mean, I there's no there's no yeah. um 
the, yeah, do it. I mean, of course, I would never say, you know, I mean, obviously, yeah, I mean, th- there's no harm, but you're about to also have twins. So <laughs> your yeah. time's going to be cut out. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, um, you know, you, you mentioned now briefly, you, you, I mean, you still have your TV pro, like, wh- where are you at right now? <clears throat> um, I'm at home, which is in Leicestershire, so in the middle of England, and um, TV for me at the moment has been pretty much cancelled. We were meant to be filming a program for Channel Four in April, and then Discovery Channel would be—I'd be out there filming now, and that—that's all been canned um, coronavirus. So I'm just waiting for things to kick off again, really. Um, yeah. Um, I'm starting a podcast on Monday, and. Um, and I've been making um, online bushcraft courses, which will be released soon. Um, but just looking for alternative, looking for opportunities, really looking for alternative things that I can do whilst whilst um, TV finds its feet again. I suppose, yeah, post, post yeah. yeah. And so your and, your podcast, what's your podcast about? And what's it called? <clears throat> it's called Dangerous. It's called Dangerous Minds, um, and it's about it's <laughs> yeah. getting yeah, it's about getting under the skin of of um, People who go and put themselves at risk, people who go and endure, you know, hardship for extended periods of time and potentially that are leaving families behind, um, to cope on their own and, and just getting under the skin of, of whether it's healthy, um, you know, why people do it, what, what the benefits are, mm. you know, is it self or is it, you know, um, a beautiful sort of crucible for, that can help self development. And, um, and I, I really like that. I mean, I'm not big in terms of adventure. I don't. It's not about crossing rivers and killing snakes and stuff like that for me, really. It is, it is, it is a vehicle in which to, to become a better version of yourself, I think. Um, mm. So, yeah, exploring all of that. Quite a lot similar to what you're exploring, actually. Um, yeah, and I like your concept of not researching um, the um, person that you're interviewing beforehand so that you're genuinely exploring, um, exploring into their minds and stuff. And it, it's not as structured as a normal chat but mm. but therefore it's there's quite a lot it's quite a lot more genuine as a result isn't it i i think i might i yeah. might um steal your tactics a little bit <laughs> yeah i mean it's obviously it's you know because now i mean you know just this week i also like i said i interviewed Evan richardson i mean he's got like over a million followers on on instagram on one of his channels alone um yeah. a couple of hundred thousand on another and you know i've just got to disconnect myself from that because um you know, I know, like, yeah, you know, this is just a genuine, uh, this is just me, genuinely. You, you're not hearing me in any, um, you know, I don't have a boss telling me how to do anything. You know, this is my show. And it's, yeah. it's just sort of having a genuine connection with, with people that are inspiring. And certainly, um, I need to find the truth of what inspires me about that person. Otherwise, I can't interview them. You know, I've had people approach me asking me to interview them, but I, yeah. I, unless it's a paid job, you know, then I don't do it because uh, on on the show it has to be a genuine um, inquiry. Which is like what I said to you. You know, I'd love to know who inspires you. Um, yeah. Because and then and then I need to answer it for myself. Like, do I feel that same synergy? That's why I said to you, if there's a synergy, then I'd love to, uh, you know, get them on the show and just, you know, connect with them and and find out who the person yeah. is and how they can inspire people. I mean, this conversation alone, let me tell you, can, yeah, change people's lives because you you've been so open about things, you know, about your 
your journey. And like I said, I, and I mean, I know you even, uh, because I had to do like a, a very surface sort of scan of you, you know, just to get an idea. But I mean, I, I saw very briefly, like you, you did the sort of living on the streets for six, I don't know, for how long you lived on the streets, like, um, six days. Yeah. Like a 60 days, 60 days, like a, ho- a homeless person, right? Yeah. 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 No, it was, it, it was, um, it was. It wasn't my idea, but I I jumped at it immediately. Basically, it was to try and get under the skin of the British homelessness epidemic. Was to if I, if I was to, I'd always, I'd always thought that doing an urban version of survival, because that's what I do, obviously on Discovery Channel, it would be a bit crass because there's people who are genuinely, obviously, trying to survive on the streets, and therefore I thought it would be a pretty tasteless um, thing to do. Mm. And yet, when it was me, would you do it? In order to meet the people um, who are on the streets and, and tell the story from the inside, tell their story, mm. then I thought okay, that, that that's a genuine reason for doing it. So, so you've got one side of it, which is just surviving on the streets, which is quite frankly in Britain totally easy because there's so many food banks and the, the generosity of the British public is extraordinary, and so that wasn't an issue in the slightest. But mm. but the, the challenge was was. Um, essentially doing what you've done to me today it was sitting down next to people and, and, and working out their story and, 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 and seeing if you could, you, you, you know, as long as they were happy to do so, you know, um, telling their story um, in a way that hopefully um, makes, made, made the viewers empathetic, empathetic towards, um, you know, how they'd ended up on the streets and stuff. And some of the stories were so powerful. And I was amazed how much more people opened up to me just because I was, essentially sleeping rough and I was I was wearing the same clothes as them and I looked just as filthy as them mm. and it just got a different angle on the whole thing. It was it was it was utterly, you know, um astounding how how much of a world we were we were sort of uh, allowed into. But yeah, that that was that was in the, that was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life actually. Um, but, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean the amount of addiction, the amount of mental health problems, I mean, you know, the I went I, I had an argument with Philip Schofield who's does British mid-morning TV and um, um, on 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 uh, Good Morning, which is the program, uh, and uh, so he's got like millions of viewers and stuff. Yeah. And he was like, I said to him, um, he said, he said, uh, why, why? I said, aren't you reinforcing stereotypes by saying that that most people on the streets are um, are addicts? And I said, well, I don't think it's a stereotype, but it's true. Um, and and he said, well, I've just given. Um, Two hundred pounds to a homeless person because they told me they were going to go and spend it on a on a hotel, and I said, "Well, that's really generous of you, Philip, but I can guarantee that that would have gone on drugs or alcohol." Oh <laughs> yeah, and uh, and and but you're just reinforcing stereotypes, and I'm like, Philip, like, I can, I might have my sixty days on the streets might have been atypical, but I don't think it was, and like I I I met one person in the entire time who I was on the streets with who was who was um who was not an alcoholic or a drug addict, you know, one person, everybody else was. And mm. I say, so, so like to, to say that it's a stereotype is, is nonsense. It's just, a, it's a truth. And it might not be what the homeless charities want you to say, because they want everyone to think that homeless people are poor mm. or deprived people who have never done anything in their life. And the, the honest truth is most homeless people have probably been in jail through two or three times, you know, not that they haven't got a tragic story at the beginning of their life. Most of them have, but, but you know, if you were to pick them at a different point of their life, they would be criminals in jail and, and, and you'd potentially feel less romantically sorry for them. And I think it was, it was a, it was kind of warts and all program, which was, which was, uh, 
quite eye-opening, I think, for a lot of people. And, and, and just, you know, you shouldn't give homeless people money at the end of the day. You're just, you're just... Um, no, it's the same thing with education, you're facil- right? You're facilitating a habit to continue. Yeah, it's, that doesn't <laughs> empower. Yeah. It, it, it just it just keeps them keeps them stuck in the same place. Yeah, so, yeah no, it was it was a very powerful experience, really. It was um, and, and quite a privilege, really, to have, have such a have such an insight into that world. Wow! For, but tell me something because, like, just you talk about mental challenge, right? I mean, are we talking about like have you had a psychosis before? You like like what it what like is it just sort of this beating yourself up in your head? Like, I mean, what what. What's mental challenge mean to you? The word mental challenge. Um, I think I've always. I mean, my natural mother is quite. Um, is quite emotionally. Um, I don't know. She's a big bundle of emotions without much structure around it, and um, she's absolutely lovely and would never hurt a fly. But I've been, um, I've inherited a a. <laughs> A brain that is susceptible to, um, to, you know, being affected by things like depression or PTSD or stuff like that. Mm. And, um, uh, and, 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 you know, certainly after I put myself on a desert island for 60 days on my own, um, naked and, um, you know, you, from a psychologist and anal- analytical perspective, you couldn't make up, um, that, you know, an adoptee with abandonment issues is going to, volunteer to put himself on an yeah. island naked for 60 days and that after that that definitely had an impact on me I, I, I had a breakdown after that I couldn't get out of bed I was just crying and then and um and it and it again not a sub story at all but it just it opened up a brilliant new chapter of my life where I had to go into therapy in order to get over this period of pretty severe depression yeah but then the more you are more self-aware you are the more you understand yourself the more mm. these things are just your lives and the less it has a hold on you and that's why I think it's important when you are saying that everyone talks about mental health because it's not that we all need to become navel gazers and start wallowing in self-pity but just by recognizing stuff and becoming aware of it does take this grip away doesn't sure. it and it, just, it and, 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 so, and suddenly things become more manageable and, and and suddenly everything's got its place and so yeah no it's it's all been a huge journey but I'm, I, w- I wouldn't change anything no yeah. Okay, I'm like, because you said until seven years ago, but you have then seen your biological parents, right? Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, and yeah. have you have you forgiven them? Ah, no, I don't see there's anything to forgive. I mean, in in modern Western society, I'm extraordinarily lucky to be born. You know, most people would have had me terminated. So, um, you know, the very fact that I'm in the world. My mum was only 15 when I was conceived, so she okay. did. She, you know, there's not much to to blame her for apart from you know um having an active sex life when she was 15 yeah yeah yeah, but, yeah. i know i'm just i'm grateful to be here jen quite yeah. frankly and um and you no know, there was a you know that it's lovely to meet them and stuff um and 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 the, but the extraordinary thing was that they that they against all odds had 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 um stayed together and then they ended up having two more kids so so six years ago, I, I found that I got two brothers and they're same, same mum and same dad. And so we met and, you know, I was with them last night drinking, um, drinking beers and they're just, they're like my proper brother. Well, they are my proper brother. So, um, yeah, yeah no, it's a nice, it's a nice story and it ends well. So we're going to lead towards closing off, um, Ed, but, okay. um, yes. so you, so you mean, so you, you right now you're, you said Leicestershire, right? Yeah. 
So you're in Leicestershire, you're based at home. Obviously, Corona's, you know, changed, canceled a lot of TV work. You're starting your show, your podcast show called Dangerous Minds. So guys listening now, you yeah. can go check out Ed's show called uh, Dangerous Minds. And yes, um, yeah. and then, yeah, you work on a, on a few other projects, but obviously that's also Corona-related or not, whether it's going to go through, right? Yeah, I mean, fingers crossed TV picks up. The aim is to be filming uh, series three of a series called First Man Out, which is um, my latest Discovery Channel series by the end of the year. But, you know, you just don't know whether these things will, will come good, whether we'll have a second spike or, or what the situation is. But yeah. fingers crossed. And anyway, well, I mean, it's good timing for you because you're about to have two twins. So <laughs> yeah, that that is a blessing, actually. Yeah. So that was <laughs> it your... is, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it is. I mean, I would never have dreamt that I would have had this amount of time to support Laura during her pregnancy. So yeah, no, it's been great. Yeah. Uh, well, Ed, listen, I just want to, yeah, I think in closing, I've got to actually just two, two questions that pop up in my head now, but because of everything we're talking about, like how, how would you sort of want to be, and this is not a common closing question. I haven't asked anyone else this, so don't think of it that way, but like, how would you want to be remembered by, because you're doing all these things you know, for your reasons, and we've discussed them now. Um, but how would you want to be remembered by, like, yeah, by, by obviously, and I'm going to say it by huh, the community, say the, the viewership community, but also how would you want to be remembered by, by your family? Um, I suppose I just like to be remembered as a, a kind person who, um, it was pretty. It, it was. It's, it, it, it's certainly nothing grand. It's just you know, it was a nice person to be around. It's somebody who cared about us. It's somebody who 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 helped in life. Um, it's somebody who was quite fun to go for a drink in the pub with. Um, yeah, it's 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 light, really. It's nothing. I don't need to be remembered for centuries and centuries. I don't need to be remembered as even the first person who walked the Amazon. That was my foot in the door in terms of achieving what I needed to do to sort out my stuff, but whether people forget it or not, it's utterly irrelevant, quite frankly. It's just, um, I want, I, I aim to be in life a decent human being. And so I think it's just a, a good fun person, a good fun and kind, I suppose, person to be around. Hmm. But yet you're very driven by doing these adventure things. <laughs> yes. But, you know, that drive is, as I said before, that drive has shifted. You know, the, 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 the beat your chest, the ego side of it has, has almost completely faded away. So, you know, um, it's now, I have the same job as I did seven years ago. And I had my own series on Discovery Channel back then as well. But, you know, I was going back to an empty flat then. Um, and, uh, you know, then just going online and drinking and, you know, by three o'clock in the morning, stumbling into bed or whatever. And life was, kind of meaningless and um i've still got exactly the same job now but i've got a wife and babies on the way and a little boy and and everything seems so much more wholesome and and you know i'm providing and 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 i have a, a home and therefore a harbor and a, and a core to my life which which makes it all meaningful so um so i don't think it's what the same thing is what you do and and i do think that even that even though you could be extremely driven to get something i don't you know, I, I feel like I've got it. You know, in terms of the family, I'm, I'm not, I, I'm not on this sort of forever hamster wheel of of trying to get more and more and more and more. Um, I think that's quite danger in life that you, you that you're never satisfied. I think you know, 
I, I'm very appreciative of, of what I have now, basically. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it all really started with you just applying for that three-month job in... Uh, yeah, yeah, that was a big change, certainly. Yeah. Belize, yeah. Yeah. Um, and one question I do ask everyone on closing, um, and I, you know, because our conversation has largely also been around sort of, you know, you also, you know, going through your own personal challenges, but I mean, let's just target it at sort of at the mental challenging area. Um, and I think that this is applicable to everyone, like people in Corona. I mean, South Africa's back in lockdown. There's no alcohol. Like people are dealing. I say there's no alcohol. Like that's the biggest problem in the world, which is totally not. But it's just it's people on lockdown in and in, in very trapped feeling, like a trapped situation, you know. And that puts stress on people. So, um, but for you, let's just. I mean, Corona's a metaphor for all hard times. But for you, you've got your own. Uh, well, sort of direct story to it, but what would you, what tips would you give based on the things that you've had to um, hold close to you, like the tools that you've had to hold close to you to get through when you've you've been in these mental, you know, challenges in your head? Like if you can just maybe share one or two for people to just help them get through this unpredictability at the moment that we're going through, or if it's okay. – you know, or or just in general, because Corona won't last forever. So, um, I think, I think one of the biggest, um, I think one of the biggest things that I learned was to to take responsibility for your situation, even though coronavirus seems like something that is put upon us by other people. Mm. It, it's a situation in our lives, and we all need to take responsibility for it. And and there's no. There's no benefit from getting angry. There's no benefit from moaning or complaining or, or you know, bitching about the government or this, that, and the other. Or, or, or and, and and I just think acceptance of everything exactly how it is. Now it's quite a sort of Zen concept, but it's so beautiful in the fact that it's so simple. It's like stop wasting all this energy um, worrying or complaining. Just completely accept your current situation, and then from that point on onwards, if you can do that, if you can just accept that this is where we are, then everything that you then do is, is positive. Um, and, um, and it was, I think it was Cho really, um, who was the guy who wrote the Amazon. He used to have an expression, which was quando I, I, quando no, I, no, I, which if you literally translate it. It means when there is, there is, and when there isn't, there isn't. And initially I got really annoyed with that because I thought that's pretty obvious, isn't it? But what he meant by, <laughs> yeah. it, there's no point in focusing on the things that you don't have. Uh, this was, this was referring to food when we we're in the Amazon, but, because you can't influence that. All you can do is just completely accept the current situation and, and then, 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 then you're not, not dragging everything else down into this negative mood because you're complaining about everything. You're just accepting it and, and, mm. and then moving positively. And I think that, that's what I try and, that's how I try and live my life, certainly. I think it's all too easy to get sucked into having a good mind and it feels good almost. It's almost addictive. But as a British public, certainly we're terrible at it. But, um, but, yeah, it's 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 not taking responsibility for yourself, and and I think that that's one of the key things that that makes the difference between people who are successful and the people who aren't is just just taking responsibility for everything in their life. Yeah, yeah interesting. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, I'm just curious if you were sitting in the street still as a homeless and Corona was happening, right? 
like mm. what would you what what in the same concept context what advice would you give one of the homeless people oh, it's so tricky when it, when it comes to addiction because because i don't know whether you've had close people close to you who are addicted but mm-hmm. that comes above everything so so that immediately there's honesty is lost and you know that if someone's an addict they're quite happy to lie to you in order okay. to get the next fix and they're quite happy to get the next fix over paying for their children's meals even mm-hmm. so it's it's such a short-term mentality that i don't think they give a monkeys about coronavirus and and you know i need to be careful what i say because i've never been homeless i've just done an experiment where i slept rough for for 60 days but i have you know made good friends with people along the way and and, and i think i have some insight into it but in general, I mean, if there's less people giving money, then that probably means that there's less people spending it on drugs. It probably means that the homeless situation is being affected in a positive way. And in terms of their actual attitude towards the virus, I would have thought that their addiction is making them so short-sighted that it's it's hardly even touching the sides. It's hardly even noticeable. That would be mm. my Okay, my well, let's let's use that one person, the one person that you said wasn't. Yeah. An addict. Yeah. Uh, oh, crikey. <laughs> what, as in- and forget about Corona. Corona is just a metaphor for shit time. So just, but, but the question is how, what tools that you've had to take with you that you've learned have helped you get through, yeah, times where you have felt helpless. Um, and I'm saying it as an okay, so because I agree, when you get drugs involved, that becomes a whole nother dynamic. So, are you absolutely clear about that? And that's true. But um, we, let's talk about that one person. If you're sitting next to that one person who wasn't an addict, what would you say to them now? In I that question, I think that that nothing ever stays the same forever does it i mean new new opportunities arise all of the time and i think i think i would revert back to the advice about well essentially because because you know that nothing's going to stay the same forever if you've accepted your situation and you are looking for opportunities then they will arise and they just do in life there's so many opportunities i think it's one of the reasons why i don't have as much sympathy as other people do for for homeless people is that there is so much opportunity to get off the streets. There is so much help there. From a military perspective, there's so many charities that help veterans and they're, and they are all pretty much off the street. I only met two, no, one military person who was on the streets and that was because he, he'd become such a pacifist. He was rejecting help from all the military charities that the guys who are on the streets are there because they want to be on the streets and they want to be on the streets because it's, because it's a straightforward place. They've given up hope, and it's a straightforward place where they can both access mm-hmm. money, have no drugs. And so it's, it's the, the homeless thing for me is a tricky one to divorce from that. But if, you, if we were just talking about somebody going through shit times, it would just be it would just be like this. This will change. This will get better. And you know, we all go through periods of shit times. And no, but it's I say the homeless, sorry, I say the homeless because, and I, you, you mentioned the alcohol thing, so that, that, that made that clear, actually, that wasn't a, a valid question, but it was more, it's because people, um, when people feel helpless, genuinely when they feel helpless, 
And that's the sort of notion that I'm trying to sort of connect from in terms of what advice would you give that person? That's the responsibility thing for me. I think, you know, being helpless is a misconception of who you are. You're not helpless. You are extraordinarily capable. Um, I, I do know somebody that I'm not going to mention who it is, is in, very, very close to me who, who thinks that she's helpless and, you know, struggles to leave the door of her house, hugely struggles with what people think of her, you know, calls upon all of her family to do things for her. And I think at the end of the day, she's not helpless. She just needs to shift, which I say you just needs to. It's a very difficult thing to, uh, you know, because, because conveying to somebody this, but, I'm a firm believer that anybody who who hits rock bottom and then has a realization that they just need to help themselves, has, that turning the corner is the thing that then enables things to get better. And everyone can can make their life better. And and that the whole concept of being helpless, unless you are, I don't know, physically disabled or mentally disabled, or you know you have an actual genuine reason. But if you're if you are um, an able-bodied human being just saying you're helpless is is false you know you're not you've got you've got so many capabilities or thinking, or thinking it because a lot of these people don't say it but they think it yeah yeah so it's it's you know I mean, again it's it's I, well in that in that case it would be you know a, a sort of caring support for somebody and trying to um instill enough confidence in themselves for them to be able to start taking that positive action and i think yeah you, there are lots of people in life who who have who have been through hard times, but also have been treated in a shit way that therefore they, they don't feel like they deserve stuff or they don't love themselves enough or they don't, um, you know, have enough confidence or they don't, have enough, yeah. they know how to esteem themselves either. And, um, and, so, so um, just, just give me one, one tip that they could use. One tip. Something like a, like a tip, you know, physical, well, I mean, actionable right. tip. The thing that I do, um, and and it's a it's a visualization thing that I do um, every day. But there's a there's a very timid version of myself that in the playground used to go and hide under this bush. Mm. And and I didn't I didn't want to get rejected. I didn't want to get excluded from games. And 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 if I hid under this bush, nobody knew I was there, and I couldn't get rejected. And it was essentially taking myself out of the whole equation. And what I do, <laughs> and it, this this that you know me hiding under a bush will be di- a different a different sort of mental picture for whoever, depending on a time that they can visualize in their childhood where they felt, you know, helpless, I suppose, and timid. And and I, I literally crawl under the bush as my adult self alongside my younger self. And I start gently, I'm reading them, I'm reading, and it's different every single time. I'm reading their emotions, I'm reading their face. I'm, and sometimes I'll put an arm straight round, but sometimes that might be, you know, too much. And, and, and I'm literally comforting myself in this little mental mm. pit of, of my younger self because it's, because, you know, it, it's, I suppose, in a place where feeling helpless is essentially saying that you need somebody else to help you, but you have got somebody else to help you. You've got the adult, strong version of yourself that just needs to show up. And turn up, and, that, and that's that's what I mean by the responsibility. And I think personally, I do use that as a coaching tactic. If if things are desperate and 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 I do still get to low places, then I will go back to this visualization, and I'll literally I'll literally crawl into this hedge, and I'll mm. and I'll gent gently try and um, bring the younger version of myself back around and make him realise that he's loved and lovable, and mm. and 
and that the world is okay and that it'll be fine and and you know and 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 maybe that's not a tactic that would work for everyone but you know you did put me on the spot somewhat in terms of coming up with an actual physical thing that you would do if you were feeling helpless and, yeah. and that's what I do I love it so, yeah. I love it but you your place is closer than mine wow Ed I so enjoyed that conversation um yes indeed I'm looking for deep I'm looking for up close and personal because you know otherwise for me what's the point of having a conversation um it was super cool to connect with you and just to really understand and find out you know what your what your journey is and what your drive is and I know now you've already you know you've you've got two extra little babes in the family so there's um there's five of you now and um yeah, it's uh it's a different journey that you want, a different uh a different adventure. So, yeah, I really look forward to connecting with you in the future and finding out what life is like being an, being an adventure man and an outdoor survivor with uh two twins, one little boy and um well, a, a gorgeous wife. So, I just want to thank you so much for coming onto the show with me. It was so awesome to connect with you and um I wish you so much luck in all the adventures going forward. So guys, now it's that time for me to introduce my next guest. So guys, my next guest on the show, her name is Kate Brooks, awesome, phenomenal woman, just like you guys listening right now. Everyone's awesome and we're all taking our own steps. From Kate's perspective, having listened to her story, the reason why she is awesome is because, um, yeah, she's going out there connecting with her truth. She's a, she's a photographic journalist. She's a filmmaker and she's also, well, quite entrepreneurial. She started her own nonprofit organization called The Last Animals. Her, her film is called The Last Animals. Most of you might have heard of it. Um, if you haven't go, go search it. It's called The Last Animals and you can find it on all the, the film platforms out there, Netflix or National Geographic. Um, Super cool woman, inspiring. She shares her journey with us, what started her off in photography and yeah, what her first real life-changing event was, which was capturing the story of an orphanage in Russia. Uh, phenomenal. Um, also phenomenal because she actually made changes happen in this orphanage, which she terms a death house. Um, yeah. So much respect for people who go out there and make these um, profound shifts, create these shifts, you know, in society where they're necessary. And she's one of these women. So listen to her interview next week. It's, yeah, awesome for men, women. You know, like I say, you don't have to be a man to be inspired by a woman's story and vice, vice versa. Just cool stories where we can mirror back into our own lives, learn from their wisdoms, discover things about ourselves through other people's lives. Um, yeah. Share this on guys. Connect with me on Instagram. Go to the website, inspirationalinterviews.com. Subscribe there once a week. You'll receive these super cool stories. As I said, it's free. So, um, let your friends know about it who enjoys life stories. And those of you guys needing an interviewer, as I always say, just send me an email via the website, um, on book me or, uh, yeah, Jen at inspirationalinterviews.com is, is direct to my mailbox. And yeah. As I always say, have an amazing week, guys, and see you on the flip side.